And good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, depending upon where you are on this rotating globe. Welcome to another edition, I might add a very special edition tonight, of The Other Side of Midnight. That magical time between dusk and dawn when, well, just about anything can happen. I've been saying for years now that uh, that time, which was kind of uh, marked out by Art Bell for many, 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 many years, has migrated to where it's uh, literally 24-7. And tonight we're going to talk about what could be an historical breakpoint in a 75-year-old uh, scientific, engineering, and most of all, political conundrum, which is, what are UFOs? Are we ever going to find out, as the general public, as the great unwashed, as someone once said, um, what's been going on and what will go on from here henceforth? Well, tonight we're going to be spending three hours discussing all the various moving parts in Washington, D.C. and other places, uh, all the players, all the interrelated, internecine, behind-the-scenes warfare, who's trying to be on top, who's trying to control the message, what the agendas might be, what they probably are not. In other words, we're going to do a thorough top-to-bottom review of where we are tonight, given that um, uh, a week ago, the um, uh, DNI, the... uh, President's coordinator of 17 intelligence agencies of the U.S. government submitted a um, summary of its much more extensive report, which was delivered several days prior to the Congress on the subject of UFOs. Well, I'm sorry. We're supposed to call them UAPs now. You know, you can't tell the players without a scorecard. And we'll get into why the names have changed and about branding and all this, you know, kind of superficial nonsense. The fact of the matter is that a subject which should have been treated at the highest level of seriousness and at the level of national security almost three quarters of a century ago is now receiving something of that approach in the 21st century. And we'll see where it goes. Before, however, we get to that, there are some news items I want to kind of uh, get into tonight before we start our conversation. So if you go to the other side of midnight.com, remember that's our URL, the other side of midnight.com, click on tonight's banner, which says the Senate UAP report. Where do we go from here? Click on that. That will take you to the guest page. And under the guest page, you will see <clears throat> that banner. You'll see a, a series of links uh, Richard and, and me, and then you'll see Danny and Joseph and uh, Stephen. Click on uh, me, and um, that will take you to my items. Item number one, um, you've probably all been following, as I have been following because of uh, Robin's deep roots in uh, Miami, this extraordinary, incredible tragedy unfolding in Surfside where, you know, a little over um, 10 days ago now, I think, a entire condominium high-rise, you know, collapsed, at least part of it did. And there are something like 121 people tonight unaccounted for. There are 22 known deaths, and there are incredible complications because in, in addition to the 
high humidity and the fact that they had fires somewhere in the pile and you know it's incredibly unstable so if you do the wrong thing the voids where people may be trapped where there's oxygen and and you know the ability to breathe and to 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 exist could collapse at any moment so it's been incredibly difficult to sort through like jack straws to get down to where there may be people buried still alive still waiting to be rescued um i believe that the historic record is something like 20 days uh in a case in haiti during the uh, uh subsequent to the uh, haitian earthquake so hope has not run out the complication tonight is there is a major storm heading for florida it was a hurricane it was a uh, category one it's now down to a very high strength tropical storm 60 mile an hour winds the track is taking it up the western side of florida but the winds at the surfside location of the high rise that collapsed with the remains of the building precariously uh, teetering literally teetering uh, engineers have found that interior beams have moved in the last uh, 10 days by about a foot and that's not good that's not good at all this thing could come down at any moment and the wind loading of a very large building with very large surface area in almost hurricane strength winds could literally bring it down on the pile of previously collapsed structure thereby smashing flat any voids pile therefore extinguishing any hope of finding life so what they're going to do tonight sometime between now when we're on the air and around 3 a.m um eastern time they're going to do a controlled demolition they placed charges they've drilled holes they placed uh, uh c4 i guess in the in the appropriate locations they're going to try to bring this thing down within its own footprint um covering the pile of the previously collapsed structure with a tarp so they can sort out new debris from old debris and that's all supposed to take place tonight before the storm winds rise and before the uh, wind loading could bring the uh, structure down in uncontrolled fashion needless to say um, you know my heart goes out to the families because the agony of not knowing of having these other examples where people have survived for 10 days or 20 days uh, there was a case in Italy where I think someone survived uh, for 17 days uh, there is extraordinary hope tonight that after all this, they will actually find survivors. So far, uh, unfortunately, they've only found uh, uh, remains and, and bodies. And as I said, 22 people are no, now known to have lost their lives. Um, moving on. Um, tonight, we're going to be talking about this preliminary assessment from the DNI of uh, uh, prior to the actual Senate report either being released or someone leaking it. Um, the report from the DNI, um, the Director of uh, National Intelligence, is not the same as the report. This is a summary. And the details are, you know, as they used to say, the devil is you know where. So one of the things we're going to talk about tonight is to differentiate between that which so far has been made public which is a very light once over cursory view and what's going on behind the scenes and what is going on between the lines. Um, there are many, many news reports 
And what I'm finding interesting is that the, the tendency of the mainstream media, which for decades has been to treat this subject as either the kind of funny fluffer at the end of the news or to deal with it with a smirk, has been very different. I've seen networks treat this very seriously. I've seen uh, Helen Cooper, who was the uh, Pentagon correspondent for the New York Times, being asked by one network to be their UFO correspondent. Um, the term UAP seems to have been nicely forgotten. And so item number two is, I believe, a BBC story, which shows that, um, uh, yes, it is, which shows that um, the way the mainstream media, even overseas, are treating this is they all kind of know that ultimately we're going to get to ETs. Ultimately, we're going to get to what euphemistically you might call aliens, but we have to go through a number of other doorways first. Well, they're kind of going through the final doorway already. And so it's going to be very interesting to see how the media treat uh, uh, the potential for hearings, what happens during hearings, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So if you want to kind of an overview of the politics of media coverage, you might want to check out that BBC story. Item number three um, is the report itself. Now, this, again, is not the Senate report that we've all been talking about. This is a summary analysis. Or I'm, actually, it's not even an analysis. It's a summary presentation from the uh, director of national intelligence, which is the office set up by the president of the Congress back uh, after 9-11 to coordinate <clears throat> between the 17 intelligence agencies that are supposed to be funneling intelligence to the president. So this is kind of like a switchboard, and this is the chairman of the switchboard, the director, and it's his statement. I think it's nine pages. It's not the um, almost 100 pages that the actual Senate report entails, nor will it be uh, – uh, the substance of many of the witnesses which will appear at congressional hearings, which in fact appear to be on track, and we will be talking in detail about where we stand with that, who do mainstream political polling on all kinds of subjects. They have done, in light of the public interest in UFOs, UAPs, whatever you want to call them, they have done a major poll and this is the publication of the poll. Um, it's very interesting, very interesting to uh, 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 see what, what they're saying. This particular poll shows that an overwhelming number of um, adults living in the U.S., when surveyed, 65% are answering in the affirmative that they believe that there is life on other planets, and a similar percentage believe that UFOs are indicative of that life somehow coming here. It's very interesting that this breaks down according to some very uh, other mainstream political lines, and we will get into discussions of that uh, later in the morning. Finally, item number six, um, Senator Mike Gravel, um, who was a really pioneer. He's the, he's the uh, senator who back in the 70s kind of politically in the uh, – U.S. Senate broke open the um, whole Watergate thing by reading the Pentagon Papers on the floor of the Senate as part of his uh, duties as chairman of a particular 
Senate committee, which had nothing to do with national security or or things that go bump the night or whatever, but he was watching the contretemps between the Pentagon, the New York Times, and the Washington Post regarding keeping the leaked Pentagon Papers secret, and because what uh, senators and congressmen say on the floor of the House and the Senate is inviolable, they cannot be um, put in prison, they can't be uh, sued, they, there are no legal repercussions for anything other than the uh, laws of civility of the House and the Senate on the floor itself. So uh, Gravel chose that moment in time very propitiously to read major segments of the Pentagon Papers, which, of course, removed the veil from what the U.S. had been doing in Vietnam and some of the duplicity and the chicanery around the uh, really, you know, how we got into the war, which was, you know, the Tonkin affair, the Tonkin Gulf affair, which turned out to be a, a, a lie. And so one might ask oneself in all good conscience, will there be another Mike Ravel who in this current political atmosphere around national security, around UFOs, around uh, the whole subject of what is flying in our skies that's been in the skies for at least 75 years and assiduously, politically, publicly ignored by the entire U.S. government, it could be one courageous senator or congressman who decides to read into the record, the congressional record, some very important key information. And I have one specific example in addition to Gravel that I'm going to bring up as we uh, move into our conversation. So without further ado, let me introduce our panelists tonight. Uh, Joe Bookman is still uh, not available, but we do have Danny Sheehan with us and we have uh, Stephen Bassett. So beginning at the top, Danny Sheehan is a Harvard Law School and Harvard Divinity School trained constitutional litigation and appellate attorney. For close to five decades, he has worked as a federal civil rights attorney, an author, a public speaker, and college and law ed educator, helping to expose the structural source of injustice in our country and around the world. He has protected the fundamental and inalienable rights of world citizens and has elucidated a compelling and inspiring vision for the future direction of the human family. His dedication to this vision and his work have placed him at the center of many of the most important legal cases and social movements of our generation. And if you go to the other side of Midnight and click on bios there on the guest page, you will find a full detail of all the um, cases he's been involved with, which starts with the Pentagon Papers, the New York Times versus the United States. Our second guest this morning is Stephen Bassett. I've known Stephen for... Oh, as my grandmother would have said, a Coons age political activist. He's a disclosure advocate and executive director of the Paradigm Research Group, founded in 1996 to end the government-imposed embargo on the truth behind extraterrestrial-related phenomena. And you can also read his full bio there at the bottom of the guest page. I'm sorry, at the top on the other side of midnight. So without further ado... Gentlemen, welcome back to the other side of midnight. Terrific, thank you. Thanks, Richard. We're we're, we're here, evening. ready to go. Um, I was going to have Joe give us a kind of a background on Gravel because he was a pivotal character 
and senator and mover and shaker in the whole uh, Pentagon Papers thing. So I'm going to switch, Danny, and I'm going to ask you to give a summary of why we should remember Mike Ravel fondly in light of what's about to happen in Washington on this phenomenon. Uh, sure. Uh, well, what, what happened? What happened is that uh, back in 1971, in June, uh, it was late, late May of 1971. Uh, I got a call from Jim Goodell, who was the uh, chief counsel for and executive vice president of the New York Times. Uh, I knew I knew Jim because I had initiated the case that established the right of journalists to protect their confidential news sources uh, when I was the founding uh, co-editor of the Harvard Civil Rights Law Review uh, back before. And uh, because of that, I was uh, briefing the case in front of the United States Supreme Court uh, on behalf of NBC. So that were the, it was an NBC uh, journalist that was the uh, major uh, plaintiff in that particular action to get that right established. And uh, I was asked to write the amicus briefs, which are friend of the court briefs and co-briefs with uh, uh, both CBS and ABC television, but also the New York Times and the Washington Post. So it was it was in it was in that context that I got to meet Jim Goodell, uh, Jim Goodell rather, who was the uh, the the vice president and general counsel for the Times. So I got the call when they they got the Pentagon Papers. Uh, they called our law firm to uh, have us represent them to uh, in case the uh, the Nixon administration tried to stop them from publishing. We began publishing on the date of June 13th, uh, and we had published for three days when uh, I got another call from uh, Whitney North Seymour, who was the uh, United States Attorney for the Southern District of New York who tried to get us to stop publishing the papers. Uh, We refused to stop. And so he brought an action on behalf of the United States government, the Nixon administration under uh, John Mitchell, the U.S. attorney, to secure an injunction against the New York Times to stop us from publishing uh, these documents, uh, at least until uh, Judge Murray Gerfine, uh, the federal judge in the Southern District of New York, had a chance to review them to determine whether he believed that there was information in the documents that would have irrevocably damaged the national security of the United States if they were made public. Uh, so he, under, he entered this injunction uh, stopping us from publishing uh, the papers after three days of publication, uh, pending his review of a copy of the document. Uh, it was at that point that, uh, that Senator Gravel uh, in the United States Senate uh, secured a copy of them and said that he was so offended at the uh, Nixon administration having sought and secured a temporary injunction against the New York Times publishing, he began to read them on the floor of the Senate. Uh, and as you pointed out earlier, uh, the, the, there's a privilege uh, for any member of the United States Senate or House of Representatives to be uh, allowed to to make any statement they chose to on the floor of the House or Senate, and they could not be held legally uh, responsible for it. They could not be sued for libel or slander. They they couldn't be sued for anything. Uh, so, so Danny, he, can I can I interrupt? Because yeah. does, does that apply to issues of confidentiality or top secret national security items? In other words, if a senator decided to read 
some top secret or burn before reading report on the floor of the Congress, could he be attacked legally by the U.S. government for anything he revealed? Well, no, just like just like the New York Times couldn't be, you know, that we won that case. Uh, we pointed out that the the uh, it, it, it was an interesting decision. I maintained throughout the course of that litigation that because of the First Amendment, uh, freedom of the press, saying that Congress shall pass no law uh, restricting the freedom of the press, that meant that the executive branch, uh, which is in charge of just carrying out the laws passed by Congress, had no source of authority, no constitutional source of authority pursuant to which they could secure an injunction to stop us from publishing. You know, in the, in the Whitney North Seymour, the United States attorney put the question to us in chambers with Judge Gerfein. He said, are you saying that the New York Times gets to make its own decision as to whether or not it will publish any classified information? And I said, yes, of course, that's exactly what it is, that we will exercise care (laughs) and we will make a decision as to what we think is appropriate and is in in the public interest to reveal. Uh, And we will, will, upon occasion, respect the, the national security of the United States. But we don't believe that there's anything in these documents that would irrevocably damage the national security of the United States. And we believe that it's very high in the public interest to reveal the fact that the administrations all the way from Eisenhower, basically under Richard Nixon as the vice president, all the way through the Kennedy administration into the, the administration of Richard Nixon, had been systematically lying to the American people, uh, that they had actively invaded uh, uh, Vietnam uh, and were attempting to establish a, a United States a military land base uh, in Asia uh, in preparation for their upcoming conflict with China, which they realized was going to come sooner or later, uh, and that that was what they were doing. Uh, and so that the public interest clearly outweighed any even limited concerns that they had about compromising the the uh, image of the United States in the eyes of our allies or in our adversaries' eyes. So, so we, we argued that we did have the right to do that. And the same thing is true of a senator or a congressperson. They have the right to reveal on the floor of the, of the House or Senate uh, any information that they feel that is of absolute uh, essential nature to tell the American people about. Now, that doesn't mean that they're going to get up and read, you know, the specifications on how to make a hydrogen bomb, you know, so that anybody can just copy it down and make a bomb. You know, they're, they're, they exercise their own discretion. But the fact of the matter is that the because of the need to, to grant uh, great breadth in what it is that the senators and congresspeople are allowed to bring up on the floor and to discuss that uh, there is an extraordinary level of privilege that is given to the senators and to the House members, uh, just as the New York Times, the case in the New York Times case uh, in the United States Supreme Court said that there was extraordinarily great leeway uh, that the New York Times had in making that type of decision. Now, this I was hoping that we were going to win a majority of the Supreme Court that, that took my position, saying that since there was no constitutional source of authority uh, for the executive branch to get us to stop doing this, and Congress could pass no law prohibiting us from doing this, that the judicial branch had no authority as well to try to stop us. Uh, but by but by a uh, a five to four 
a majority, they they refused to go that far. Uh, we we won people like Justice Black and Harlan and Justice Douglas uh, and others who agreed that we were right. But uh, Potter Stewart, uh, supported by Wizard White uh, on that court, uh, basically thought that well there there must be some resource that the the federal government had as a whole among all three of the branches to be able to stop us from uh, revealing extraordinarily sensitive classified information. Now, this, this, there's no such support for that in the Constitution anywhere. Uh, but the fact is we've crossed into being a national security state as of 1947, with the passage in December of 1947 of the National Security Act of 1947 that created the Central Intelligence Agency. Uh, the National Security Council went on to establish later the National Security Agency the Defense uh, Intelligence Agency, and others. Uh, but th- those are all implements of a national security state. Well, we're up to 17 now. I mean, that's why they had to create yes. an office yes. of, the, of DNI to simply mm-hmm. coordinate so they talk to each other. I mean, it, we, we have gone so far into the realm of making everything secret that nothing that citizens should know, particularly on the subject of tonight, uh, has been able to, to be freely published and be believed well that's it is, it is, but as you've seen that richard dolan uh who's one of the stalwarts in, in this area with the with regard to the ufo phenomena you know has a, a two-volume study that he was doing he was doing his phd work as an historian at the university of pennsylvania uh and he researched this and he was able to extract documents from the classified portions of the of our government through the Freedom of Information Act, uh, which demonstrated that there was a conscious, uh, sinister program that was underway with the Central Intelligence Agency, the FBI, uh, and the Defense Department to to in fact uh, uh, excoriate anybody who tried to report UFOs, uh, to destroy their career, to actually destroy their entire livelihood if necessary, in order to silence them and ridicule them. And they were using their resources in the uh, national media around the country, uh, in the world, to to uh, to uh, ridicule anybody who tried to even make a report. And this, that's why you get all this response inside the national news media and the television news shows and others laughing and making fun of anybody who attempted to report a UFO phenomenon. Uh, and now... We come to this show tonight because uh, as of as of December of 2017, there's been some major shift that has occurred uh, with the release of three of the uh, the uh, videos taken from the F-18 Hornet uh, gun cameras. We see uh, UFOs in action, uh, and the release of these by Lou Elizondo, who was the former director of the Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program inside the Pentagon. It was assigned the responsibility for investigating the phenomenon. He became so fed up with the way that it was being bottled up and lied about uh, that he resigned in protest uh, and released these three videos. Uh, And that is what has catalyzed this extraordinary uh, three years that we've had uh, since then uh, of, of a major shift in policy that's going on. But the Defense Department doesn't quite yet know how to respond to all of this. It's not clear that they've formulated an entirely new protocol 
to decide that they're going to all of a sudden come forward and acknowledge uh, the uh, the extraterrestrial origins of the UFO phenomena. Uh, they, they haven't done that yet. We'll talk in some detail about the report as we work our way into the program tonight. But the bottom line is is that the the New York Times has once again chosen to come forward uh, based upon credible information that was provided to them, in this case, Lou Elizondo. Okay, hang on. Uh, Danny, we're at the bottom of the hour. My guests this morning are Danny Sheehan and Steve Bassett, and Joe Bookman may join us, and he may not. We're having some uh, problems getting hold of him. Extraordinary conversation this morning because with this as precedent, with uh, Senator Mike Gravel reading the Pentagon Papers, which the Nixon administration claimed were in fact um, uh, perilous to the future of the national security of the United States, but with Gravel under the Constitution able to read them freely on the floor, has precedent been set for what will happen when congressional hearings take place pursuant to the current redefinition of UFOs as UAPs? You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. funny because I think you know I went through my crazy phase where I made mistakes before the internet and before social media and before any of this whereas now you can't do that there's no such thing so look you're saying about black and white and what it does is it stops people expressing themselves people are too frightened it's like you know I want to say something but if what if I use the wrong term but I remember a story a couple of years ago where Benedict Cumberbatch who at the time was a darling in the media's eyes was complaining about the disparity between the treatment of um, black actors and of white actors. And, and he was sticking up and saying, you know, they're not getting paid as well. They're not getting the jobs that they should be getting. And they're being, there is no equality. But what he said was, there isn't equality for colored actors. Well, you've said colored there, Benedict, you can't do that. And so they went for him and he was vilified and he had to come out and do a big apology. Now what it was, it was, it was a slip of the tongue. He's obviously not racist. He's actively trying to say that there is discrimination and he's trying to stick up for that community, but he was vilified and attacked. And that's what happens now. And so when people make their mistakes now, they make their mistakes on the internet. They make their mistakes on social media where they're screenshotted forever. And so, I think that's all part of the conditioning that people are frightened. You know, if you're in a position where I don't know what to say, I don't know what to say, in the end you'll go, well, I won't say anything then. 
the fallout of this is going to be extraordinary with that because people don't realize, you know, when you, 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 you're phoning up the police and grasping on your neighbors and when all this ends, they're still going to be your neighbors and you're still going to have to live next door to them. And good luck with that. Hello, everyone. My name's Gareth Ike. It's been a pleasure to talk on the other side of the news. Fantastic conversation with Kinthea, Timothy and Annetta. And I wish you all the best with a fantastic podcast. And welcome back, everyone, to the other side of midnight for this Saturday, no, Sunday, Sunday, July 4th. By the way, happy July 4th, everyone. Uh, I saw a brief uh, broadcast from Boston, from the Boston Pops of fireworks over Boston Commons. Amazing display. So welcome to uh, the other side of midnight on July 4th, this Sunday night. My guests this morning are Danny Sheehan, who has represented some astonishing, groundbreaking, constitutional um, uh, epics in American history going back several decades. Steve Bassett, who has been a dedicated advocate for uh, the end of the truth embargo for uh, honesty and uh, uh, forthcoming uh, news reporting of this phenomenon, UFOs, unidentified flying objects, reclassified by this uh, current uh, political juncture of uh, UAP, Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon. It's like, uh, what is in a name? Where is Shakespeare when you need him? Anyway, um, let me get back to my guest. Uh, Danny, the reason I wanted to start with Gravel is because it occurred to me that if Gravel's speech on the floor of the Senate as chairman of a very, very minor committee was covered by the constitution so he basically could read anything into the record that he deemed important for the national well-being of the of the uh, citizenry any senator or congressman in the last 75 years could have done the same thing and blown the truth embargo sky high from the get-go so then the question is why didn't anybody take advantage of this opportunity written into the founding documents of the nation itself. Well, maybe that's, that's part of the reason why they have not been briefed in. Uh, the, the reality is, is that uh, obviously 99% of the senators and Congress people have never been briefed in on uh, this entire program. That uh, when the, uh, the craft was recovered at Roswell in July of 1947, uh, the the equipment, the, the craft and the bodies were taken to Wright Field in Ohio. And uh, the, the meetings that took place with Truman, President Truman at the time, resulted in the, I believe, in the creation of an extra constitutional commission, uh, basically, to deal with this, this issue, precisely because they didn't trust the Congress people and the senators who, after all, are just limited elected representatives who come and go. You know, they're there for a handful of years or terms as a rule. 
even presidents can only have two terms and then they're gone. And so the, a, a decision was made apparently at the highest levels of the national security state infrastructure uh, that, uh, that they, they created the National Security Act in 1947. And they set up a whole series of agencies and uh, special access programs uh, that in fact excluded even very high ranking military officials to keep them from knowing about this information. So, so sorry to interrupt, but it would be, it would be appropriate then to say that the UFO phenomenon created what is now known in the vernacular as the deep state. Well, it's, yeah, it's, it's, you know, there were, there were other things that, that were indicia of a, of a state like that in 1945, for example, even before the enactment of the National Security Act of 1947, in November and December of 1947, uh, in 1945, when uh, when uh, Ed Lansdale, who was the G2 for the U.S. Army in the Philippines, recovered 12 of the troves of Japanese treasure that had been buried by General Yakushima of the Japanese uh, Imperial Army, uh, that, or Navy actually, that when they buried uh, 176 troves of treasure in, in the Pacific, 12 of them were discovered by Ed Lansdale that uh, had a value of $1.2 trillion. Oh, my God. Uh, and uh, that information was given to Truman, uh, and Truman set up, a again, a private group, uh, a trust called the Anderson Trust. Uh, the, the, they, they had three people, two of whom were senior partners in Brown Brothers Harriman, uh, Robert Lovett, uh, and a man by the name of Robert Anderson, to be two of the three trustees. The other one was John J. McClory. Uh, they had three civilians that were made uh, the, tr- the, tra- the trustees for a private trust that took this these $1.2 trillion into custody and put them in a trust fund. And they manipulated this money to, to pay for elections all around the world to keep socialists uh, and people who were too far to the left who were, uh, who were not supportive of establishing a major global power on the part of the United States. The whole national security state people wanted to basically establish full spectrum dominance over the entire planet, uh, and that they used these monies. Uh, And it was done outside of the normal constitutional channels. So that when, uh, two years later, in July of 1947, they came up with this extraordinary find of a, a, a UFO from an extraterrestrial civilization and the bodies of the, of the uh, pilots of the craft, they did this again. They, they brought them to right field. They established a, a group, whether it's called MJ-12, Majestic 12, or uh, Zodiac, or whatever the code names were, that they, they established this extra constitutional tribunal of people that were going to be in charge of this. And they, they brought in major defense contractors to try to back engineer uh, these crafts so they could develop uh, a unique weapon system uh, to establish hegemony over the world uh, and over their over the Soviet rivals in that time. So that this this is part and parcel. Now it did not cause the creation of the national security state, but the mentality that generated the national security act in 1947 was prevalent at that time. And they did not, they believed that the people in the executive branch that were in charge of the CIA and the national security state apparatus knew more about how to run the world than the individual elected representative. 
And so there, there weren't very many. If it, Prescott Bush appear, appears to have been much in the know. He was a liaison between the Central Intelligence Agency and the United States Senate back before they had any intelligence committee uh, to, to even report these things to. So that there, there was virtually nobody uh, in a position like Gravel was uh, back in 1971. There was no one in a position to get access to this information uh, to be able to decide whether or not to reveal it on the floor of the House or Senate. Mm. Um, okay, so Gravel sets an interesting precedent for the current environment because now that we have a kind of an official admission that this you know the the defense department is seeing something the navy has footage um there's the discussion of potential hearings i'll get to that in a minute if the hearings proceed and witnesses decide to what's the term i want to use here leak uh or potential witnesses want to want to yeah. blow the whistle if they go to a congressman or a senator and provide them with secret material secret documentation and then the senator or congressman on the floor of the house or senate then reads that into the record see when i had a discussion with Stephen a couple three weeks ago regarding these uh, potential congressional hearings i said ultimately i don't think it's going to be controllable because there's too much of a head of steam from the public wanting to know desperately wanting to know that pew research poll shows us there's a huge, uh, you know, advance over the general public, over the political process. They've already reached their conclusion. They already think we're dealing with extraterrestrials. So my, my question then is, what do you think the likelihood is that in this new environment, someone like Ravel will step forward and try to become a hero, uh, a populist on this new frontier of openness well the the closest we have to that now of course is lou elizondo who has in fact come forward and uh and brought these three videos to the new york times uh that in the new york times board of editors agreed to to publish those and make them public and to prepare a lengthy uh report based upon uh, interviews of lou and uh, Chris Mellon and some of the other people from inside. So that that process has started already. But I don't I don't believe at this stage that anybody that's involved in the Senate Intelligence Committee uh, or in the House Intelligence Committee are going to do that. Uh, the, the particular people that are on those those two committees now that there's this new institution uh, of, a, of an intelligence committee. My my judgment would be is that. The senators are going to think that now that we have an actual Senate Intelligence Committee, which we did not have at the time of Mike Gravel's uh, uh, decision, that he felt compelled to have to make this decision. Uh, I think that the people that are that are in the Senate Intelligence Committee have taken very special oaths, uh, and that if they if they were to breach their oath, uh, they would be removed from the Senate Intelligence Committee. Uh, by the by, the the president of the Senate it would be Kamala Harris, uh, and the majority leader uh, would would remove them from their post. So I don't think that's getting ready to happen. I think that uh, Steve will be able to tell you that there's a there's a much more 
responsible process that is probably underway right now of trying to stay within the guidelines right now and to take advantage of the existence now of a Senate Intelligence Committee and a House Intelligence Committee and have them, what we've got to do is make sure that the people in those committees are courageous enough collectively to do the right thing. I don't think that there's a, a split necessarily between the two political parties here. I don't, I don't believe that there's a party division uh, on this issue. I think that both the Republican Party and the Democratic Party uh, are, are wanting to be extraordinarily careful mm. about what it is they're doing here. Uh, and so the, I, think, I think they're going to, uh, you know, for the next several weeks at least, they're going to stay within the guidelines. They're going to operate within their, their uh, security oaths. They're going to be reviewing the probably 73 or more pages uh, of the so-called classified annex uh, that's been attached to this mere preliminary assessment, uh, the public part of it, which only has about six pages, actually, of any substance and not much substance at that. But, but there are some important concessions that have been made now publicly uh, in writing for the first time by the Defense Department. A very important one, of course, is that uh, even, even though there's an extremely narrow a group of uh, UFO encounters that they've actually reviewed uh, in preparation for this particular preliminary assessment. Uh, they've said that the, the considerable majority of the ones that they've looked at, they believe are very likely actual physical vehicles. Mm. Uh, and so th there you're then, now you're into it right now. You okay. Know, okay. Got... Uh, I, I, I want to get to Stephen and the congressional hearing landscape mm -hmm. in a moment but i have uh, it's rare that i have a really <clears throat> bona fide constitutional scholar under the microscope so danny forgive me but i want to ask another legal question sure if 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 house and senate members are protected on the floor by the constitution and able to basically say almost anything they want what about witnesses because what i think is going to be the wild card is given the new umbrella of credibility and given the enormous backlog of stunning documentable data that this government knows and contractors like Lockheed Martin and other places know, when you get witnesses sitting in front of a, a Senator House committee on national television, what if one of those were to basically, as you just said a moment ago, decide to blow the whistle and bring up some extraordinary new information that's not part of the current brief contemporary record, very narrowly restricted. And I'll give mm -hmm. you an example. During the Watergate hearings, and this to me was one of those thunderbolt moments, remember Alexander Butterfield's stunning oh. revelation <laughs> that Nixon yeah. had taped every damn conversation in the mm -hmm. Oval Office and how that completely upended everything and wound up with Nixon resigning. In other words, I'm looking for a moment like that, and I'm wondering, back to the legal question, are witnesses protected in testimony in terms of whatever they decide to reveal? Well, you, you also probably need to know that, that uh, I was one of the attorneys at the F. Lee Bailey's law firm that represented James McCord. James McCord, the Watergate burglar in that particular uh, scandal. He's the one that wrote the letter to uh, Judge Sirica. 
blowing the whistle on Richard Nixon and the plumbers. Uh, so that there was already a process underway uh, when uh, Alexander Butterfield, Alexander Butterfield didn't just blurt that out to the surprise of everyone in the hearing. That was very carefully choreographed. Scott Armstrong, who went on to become the head of the National Security Archives, he was one of the investigators on the staff of Peter Rodino at that time, who was the chair of the House Judiciary Committee that were conducting the investigations. And it was Scott Armstrong that, that came to know about that particular uh, 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 taping system, and he got it from Alexander Butterfield, and they went through a whole process of meeting with, with uh, John Dingell and the other leadership of the House, and they choreographed that whole thing. Uh, so that brings up an extraordinarily important point, that almost never does anything happen in a hearing in front of the Senate or House that isn't choreographed, that isn't pre-planned, uh, coordinated, you know, handing in what their proposed testimony is, and it's either approved or not approved. And if they don't approve what they're going to say, they won't let them testify. This this is a theater that goes on uh, by the elected representatives uh, for the benefit of the people, but it's not it's not a real event for the most part. Mm. Very rarely, very rarely are there real events that take place, such as in the McCarthy hearings when when you had the uh, Mr. Welch you know, confront uh, the um, Joe McCarthy. Have you uh, no decency, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, the perfect segue to Stephen. Um, I want to loop back to the substance of this trivial nine-page summary from the DNI. But Stephen, let's go to you. Where do we stand tonight on this extraordinarily important subject of congressional hearings based on what is now on the public record? That's a fairly nebulous question. Um, I can say that I'm very comfortable with what's what's happening and the way it's playing out. Uh, like start with that. Yeah, let's do that. Uh, and and then I'm I, I'm inclined to inf- give your your uh, listeners some perspective here, some background of what we do know. Uh, and there's some s- simple things that may be overlooked here. Uh, first of all. The Department of Defense and, and this task force that was set up very recently at the ONI uh, to uh, have to deliver a report was known to them in July of last year. They've known for a year that they were going to have to come up with a report. Now, the time clock didn't start until the bill was signed in December, uh, 180 days, and that's what set the, quote, final date of June 25. But these are very smart people over there at the DOD and elsewhere, and they've got lots of computers and consultants and everything else. So they had a year to plan how they were going to deal with this, and I think people forget that. Um, and then they had six months, you know, six months of that, of course, when the clock starts, they, they, they knew what the date was. And so I think everything that you see here has been thought through pretty well by very top people at the Department of Defense as, and, and any other appropriate agency. And so the strategy as it's played out is intriguing to me, but uh, I think well done. It's very well done. What they did was, well, first of all, they did not want, I assure you, to provide to the general public much of anything. That They knew that was not good. 
uh, bad for a number of reasons. So they didn't want to do that. And there were rumors uh, early on that they, well, not too long ago, that they were like wanting another three months or so. They wanted more time, meaning we would rather just not have to give the public anything <laughs> right now. Okay. Uh, but but that doesn't mean they weren't cooperating. See, giving the public a lot of information creates all kinds of issues. But the real report is what was delivered to the House and Senate. Uh, that was delivered around June 16, 17. Now, all the particulars there are not known. We know that uh, – we think it was 73 pages. We know that the House Intel uh, and Armed Services Committee got a briefing uh, involving the FBI and, and might have included that 73-page report. We know the Intel Committee of the, the Senate, and I, I have to assume the Armed Services because they've referred now to these four committees as kind of the committees that are involved. They also got the briefing. So let's just let's just assume that these four key committees, House Intel, House Armed Services, Senate Intel, Senate Armed Services, have seen the 73 report. They've gotten a briefing from one group or another, and that was back in June 16, 17. Now, they've had all this now for, what is it, 14 and 3, 17 days. <laughs> Meanwhile, and by the way, before that report was delivered to the House and Senate, you may have forgotten – that a uh, a, not a leak, I don't know if you call it a leak, but the New York Times obtained information about the public report. Uh, this is all the way back in June 3. Uh, so they, they deliberately, they fed to the New York Times some information about the public report. Uh, and there was really only two things that, that the New York Times reported, and that was that they um, concluded that, that the, uh, there was no evidence in the uh, reports they looked at, the case they looked at, pointing to extraterrestrial, but that the technology that was observed was not something that was in the possession of the United States. Now, this creates a bit of news, but not a lot of news. It was very significant statements, uh, both not quite true, but nevertheless very significant. And that was deliberately given to the New York Times and was published. But by and large, and I've chronicled most of the articles, there have been, God, several hundred. Uh, have focused on this, 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 the public report, June 25, June 25, June 25. Okay, so did was they made a compromise with themselves. Uh, they knew they couldn't simply not put out anything on the 25th. So what they did was they put together the quote preliminary assessment, which is really not much. In fact, it the, the most important thing in the preliminary assessment is in fact what was leaked in the New York Times back in early June. Right? We we. Uh, we don't see extraterrestrial in this evidence, but uh, whatever that uh, is up there, uh, we don't have it, all right? Mm-hmm. Which is again very significant. And then there's a bunch of, uh, of DoD speak and lots of acronyms and a few other things. There are a number of complete outright lies in this thing, but that's okay. They they can't tell the truth at this point. Uh, and so they fed out this small little report and then announced shortly thereafter that in three months there would be another report. Okay, so you see the strategy here. What they've done is they've managed to give the public very little. They've then strung the public out for another three months, which may be moot. Meanwhile, the House and Senate key committees have had the stuff for 14 days. The Senate left on recess on the 25th, 26th, and they won't be back till the 12th. So they're going to have another right 16 days, uh, all of those members. And then the, the House had a few more days in session. They're going to be gone for quite a while. Uh, and so they've given the House and Senate a lot of time to look at this classified material and whatever they were given verbally, whatever briefing they got, and contemplate what to do with it. Meanwhile, 
all the focus is on the public report, which ended up not being much. All right. Well, hang on, and, hang on, hang on, because if it if it didn't mean very much, nine pages, six pages, whatever. The uh-huh. other night, I chanced to, as I was going, you know, through the dial on television, on history, on Travel Channel and Discovery, uh-huh. simulcast to millions of people. There was a three-hour live special on this report called UFOs Declassified Live. Yeah. And that's based on nine pages of – I kind of agree with you. It was very, very tightly worded and very carefully worded to be an almost – I wasn't very carefully worded. Nothing. There's some stuff in there that's hilarious. I mean it's ridiculous. Well, yeah, but, but for the general public, look at it not like you and I and, yeah. and Danny look at it. Look at it like the general public. For the general public, when you start out a, a defense intelligence report saying this phenomenon represents three times, they say in the first paragraph, a threat, a threat, a threat, not yeah, a qualified, not a potential, but they call it a threat. That gets people's attention, and that got three hours on three major networks that are watched by millions of people, and we're not even into the foreplay of this yet. Dick, uh, we're talking about two different things here. Okay. There have been scores and scores of articles written about this, quote, report uh, leading up to it and since there. I've got them all on my website now. Uh, it's, we're getting up to hundreds. And then there's three-part series and everything else. Just because there's a lot of coverage and just because people want to spend three hours talking about it doesn't mean it's important. It isn't that important. But it's great. I mean, look, we'll take all the press we can get. And if people want a podcast, that's great. I mean, all of that is generating the public interest and awareness and so forth. I'm talking point of view of the government here. You want to talk about hearings, and we got to talk about the point of view of the government because that it's the government's going to make these hearings happen by and large. All right, but there's a three-dimensional chess game going on, multiple partners, and you got to kind of watch the whole thing. And what I'm trying to say is, is that they the strategy that they had a year to plan was. Give a classified significant report to the key committees. Keep the pressure off them. Get the focus on a public stuff, but you're not going to give them much. Then you're going to say, hey, 90 more days will give you something more. Mm-hmm. And that gives the House and Senate, these four committees, plenty of time to decide how to proceed with what they've got. Now, which means okay, that they have plenty see, of time we're, to make we're, decisions we're the, about. We're at the top of the hour, so hold it uh, there. My guests this morning are Steve Bassett. And Danny Sheehan, we're talking about the DNI preliminary assessment of UAP, the new government speak name for UFOs. And we've just gotten started. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return.
Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcaster to provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone, on this Sunday night, July 4th, 2021. Tonight, we're discussing the Director of National Intelligence Summary Report, nine pages of a, we think, 73-page, fully uh, forthcoming document delivered privately to the key Senate committee that requested this as part of a uh, part of a um, uh, amendment to the uh, uh, Defense uh, uh, Act that was authored by uh, Senator Mark Rubio from Florida back in December. The the inside baseball may be a little boring to some people, but as Steve pointed out just before the break, it's really going to kind of lay out what we get to see in this first round. Before we go back to Steve, uh, Danny, I, I want your assessment. What do you think the DNI report tells us and what do you think it's setting us up for down the road? In other words, what's your assessment of the substance of what has been publicly put on the record so far? Danny? Unmute. There we go. I can hear you. Yeah. It's much like the first response of any Uh, party in a litigation where they're confronted uh, and tried to uh, put in a position of having to say something they don't want to say. So that, you know, it's always about 90% of everything is, oh, I'm innocent. I didn't do anything. We don't know anything about what's going on. We don't have enough information here. We can't come to any real conclusions about anything. So, but you always look for the few concessions that they do make and they, they have made, the concession that the in the, the even though they they gird it round with all kinds of qualifications like they didn't really look at anything except military programs and they didn't look at anything except those that had multiple sourcing with radar and and visuals and uh, and other types of, uh, of verifications but what they do say then then they go to saying that well there's so little of this verifiable information that it hampers our ability to draw any type of real firm conclusion. <laughs> and so, that, so that's what they say. So that, that's what they say. But what they've said is that probably most of the incidents, and they, they're talking about some 144 incidents uh, that, are go, that go on just between, a, uh, between 2004 uh, and the present. Uh, there's 144 reports. Uh, and that uh, and that 80 of these reports involved observations with multiple sensors, as they refer to them. Those are the ones that they're looking at. Uh, and out of those 80, they've said, we've only been able to absolutely confirm one of them, which was, a, if, if you can stand for this, a weather balloon. Uh, <laughs> but the other 79 of them, uh, they basically then go on to point out that there's like four, there's like five different categories into which they assume that once they get more information, that all of these are going to break down into. 
and they they set these they set these forth uh, and they they list uh, a whole bunch of them. Interestingly enough, uh, they they talk about them that they are uh, they're going to look at the possibility that they could be some of them could be uh, extremely highly classified uh, high technology that we have developed ourselves. Secondly, they, they assert that they, they may well be, uh, be designated as some aerial phenomenon that have been misidentified, et cetera. Uh, and then they, they go on to argue that they could actually point out that they might well be uh, of some super breakthrough technology on the part of a foreign country, such as Russia or China. Uh, and, and the fact of the matter is, no matter how many times people say it, there's not a single reference in the entire document to not to extraterrestrial possibilities, uh, nor do they refer to them as non-terrestrial or anything else. Uh, they never use that phrase. They never want to go there. Uh, so, but what they do is they have a group of what they call, you know, others, uh, the others bin. <laughs> uh, and that's what they refer to it as. Uh, and, and it's quite clear that, very importantly, the, the concession that, that most of these objects are, are, are probably physical objects, uh, that many of them, most of them, uh, have been doing extraordinary things, and they make vague references to the fact that they go at, at very high speeds uh, and that they, they can't really tell that they have any kind of uh, engines that give off any heat signatures, et cetera. But they have made some very important concessions, one of which is is that they have they've displayed a capability of signal maintenance or signal coordination they they can actually combat being picked up on radar that uh in that they are obviously being operated by intelligent uh an intelligent source of some kind uh and the the they do not go into the particulars though we happen to know them you know, the inside baseball people, as you referred. I mean, the, the, these have been these these vehicles have been repeatedly uh, observed coming from 80,000 feet down to within 50 feet of the surface of the ocean within in less than one second, and then coming to an absolute halt. Uh, and this is going 43,000 miles an hour inside our atmosphere, which would burn to a total crisp virtually any vehicle we've ever produced. Uh, and then and it would generate something like 600 G's to go that fast and come to a complete stop 50 feet above the water. And then they go under the water and they travel at over 200 miles an hour under the water. Uh, now, that nowhere, nowhere in this document do they make any reference to those things, even though that's been published. Now, wait, wait. Those when you say this document, you're only talking now about the nine pages yeah. put out last Friday. Yeah, really six pages. You know, okay. there, there's a couple page, you know, <laughs> summary. But the, the the six pages of substance, there are very few things that they say. And, and in fact, they you'll notice an absolute parallel between uh, these may fall. We may, with further investigation, find that many of these may fall into some extraordinarily high tech uh, uh, advancements that are made by China or Russia. But then the next page they say, of course, we have absolutely no evidence to support that. Uh, and then, but nowhere, nowhere do they say the same thing about extraterrestrial. They don't say, oh, uh, it's possible they're extraterrestrial, but we have absolutely no proof of that whatsoever. They, they don't say anything about extraterrestrial. They don't say anything about it. 
this is all extremely prosaic stuff about, gee, these are really interesting things. Maybe they're Chinese. See, this Maybe is why I brought up the BBC story, which is linked up in my items, because the BBC turned this argument, this, this position on its head and basically, you know, kind of paraphrased that great line, which is kind of like a physics joke. You know, in the universe, that which is not forbidden is permitted. And what they said was, well, the report did not say they weren't aliens, so maybe they are. No, but, but, but the fact is, it didn't say, it didn't use the term aliens or extraterrestrial or non-terrestrial. It never made any reference whatsoever to that. So no matter what the, the, the so-called expert was that was quoted in the New York Times on June 3rd, on Thursday, June 3rd, it's not true. There was never any reference. It's important to remember that that, that New York Times report on Thursday, June 3rd, was talking about the classified annex. What was in the classified annex? Uh, and that's the only place, if, if, if it's true that the source had access to it and that they did say that, well, we don't have, weren't able to develop any evidence that these are extraterrestrial in nature, but nowhere did they make any reference about that in the summary, anywhere. Uh, all, they're, all they're talking about is setting up these little, up this other bin that, uh, that might be, it might be where they would all, extraterrestrial or extra dimensional or extra temporal. Uh, and, but I know, I know from sitting in a, in a direct hour, 40 minute interview with the Associated Press with Lou Elizondo, who, as you know, I represent. Uh, I sat there in the, in the press conference with him. And when, when Dan Hopp of the New York Times said, wait a second, if the, re if the report, even in its classified section is, is saying that, look, the vast majority of these that we've studied are not high-level American technology of any sort. And you are saying, Lou Elizondo, that it's absolutely infinitesimally possible that these are Chinese or Russian, because if they were, we would know it. Uh, and, you know, and if we didn't know it, it'd be the biggest colossal uh, uh, failure of intelligence in the history of the human family. If China or Russia had something like this and we didn't know about it, uh, and then he said, especially, you know, we've been the government, our government's been monitoring these things since 1947. And they've been displaying these same kind of characteristics since 1947. And it's totally preposterous to believe that China could have had this kind of technology back in 1947. They were still driving ox carts with stone wheels. Mm. He said to them. Uh, in Russia, Russia in 1947 had just gotten through losing over 20 million people in World War II. They were tearing up the rail lines from Russia into Europe so that they would have metal uh, in their country. You know, so it's preposterous, he said, to think that these are, are, are from China or Russia. So if you close off the vast majority of these, these as not being a part of our technology and not part of China or Russia, pursuant to, to Al, Al Ozando, who in fact ran the, the, the Pentagon investigation of these things for eight years, then Dan Huff said to him, he said, well, then what, what do you think they are? And what Lou said to him is, well, what we were examining in the, in the, in the ATIP program is the possibility that they were extraterrestrial or potentially extra-dimensional, uh, or potentially even extra-temporal, that, that, that they could be, could be our human family from the future that had developed some type of time travel capacity that are coming back. You know, now, now, these are things that are being examined 
by officials inside our United States government, not a single breath of any of that is in this summary. Uh, so what we have to do is we have to drill down on the 73 pages. Or well, so hang on, hang on. Let me let me let me push back just a little bit because the yeah. the, the the two paragraphs of the six pages that caught my eye were a declaring it's a threat three times in the first paragraph, not a, with no qualifiers, a threat. And then further down in the document, it talked about breakthrough technology and disruptive technology. Now, mm-hmm. there is a nuanced difference in the two for people that are not kind of clued in like we all are tonight. Breakthrough technology represents kind of like, you know, a super carburetor that can go, you know, 100 miles on a, on a, on a you know, two gallons of gas. A disruptive technology would be controllable anti-gravity. No wings, no propulsion, no whatever. You just basically go where you want to go because you now figured out how the universe and, and gravity work. So it makes it makes the reference to these two potentials without coming well, to a. You got, you got to be careful. You can't when they make some vague phrase like a breakthrough technology, and you can start offering particular examples that might qualify as that. This, they didn't make any reference to any particular technology at all. No, no. So, so we we got to be careful here. The, the, so that. But they open the door, as you lawyers like to say, they open the door to the possibility to discussing the concept. And for this sixth page, which is a very sanitized, brief, as brief as possible report, I thought opening the door to these extraordinary technical possibilities. You've got to be careful. got to be careful again. That all they've done is open the door to some, quote, breakthrough technology. But the, the, until until such time as there's some sort of specification of what type of candidates they're talking about, we have to be very careful about listing what we think the candidates might be and then thinking they were somehow suggesting that those might be being considered. I'm, I'm using a different criteria. I'm using the criteria of Lou Elizondo himself, who ran the program for the Pentagon, when, when asked specifically that if we eliminate as most of these examples, any high technology that the U.S. has and any technology that China or Russia has, and he's asked, well, what might they be? Then it, we, we know that Lou Elizondo has made specific references to the, to the AP, the Associated mm-hmm. Press, of potentials that are being looked at. Uh, but, but there's nothing in this document that suggests that. So the key is to keep an eye on Lou Elizondo. Because Lou Elizondo is a person who knows a lot about, I mean, there's virtually nothing that the UAP task force, nothing that they have looked at at all that isn't known to Lou Elizondo. So whatever it is that they happen to have gone ahead and said, even in their classified uh, annex to this thing, Lou is already going to know that. Uh, and so it's Lou that is driving this conversation. It's Lou that released the, the videos uh, the, the three the three gun camera videos. It's Lou who's been doing the interviews with the major media and telling them things that he has come to find out when he was running the program that what the, what this all represents is the Defense Department trying to catch up, trying to figure out what to do about this. How can they how can they manage this information? How much information do they want to release even to the Senate Intelligence Committee? 
because clearly they've, they've not had a program of releasing this information even to the Senate Intelligence Committee. So we have to get a look at the 73 pages of the, of the classified annex to see how much particular information they have really released to the Senate Intelligence Committee. Now, to go back to your uh, Mike Gravel uh, image, I, as I said, I don't anticipate any of the members of the Intelligence Committee or the Armed Services Committee of either house of the Congress you know, getting up on the floor and reading out loud what the classified annex says. Right, what's going on right now is there's a test going on of the, the national security state infrastructure testing the members of the intelligence committees and the armed services committees to see to what degree they can be trusted uh, to keep the information confidential that is given to them. Uh, and then we'll see if they're going to follow up on the 73 page preliminary. Remember that it isn't just these six pages that constitute the preliminary assessment. It's the additional 73 pages. Mm. That, that classified annex is what the real preliminary report is. And that they're testing, I think, the members of the House and Senate to see if they'll keep this confidential, to see if they're entitled to get more information. And at the same time, at the same time, Lou Elizondo and I are meeting regularly with the Inspector General of the Defense Department because they have come forward on May 3rd of this year, the same day that Lou Elizondo filed his official complaint with the Defense Department, uh, challenging them about lying about the UFOs and lying to the people about the program and lying about the, the, the uh, role that, that Lou played in the, in the program. And they, right now, the Defense Department is in the process of trying to figure out what, how they're going to respond to Lou Elizondo and how far is Lou Elizondo going to go in revealing to the public what it is he knows. Uh, and at, at this point, Lou is being extremely careful not to reveal anything that he believes is legitimately classified. Uh, and so that what the dynamic is, is to try to determine, determine what is it that he can reveal to the public. But very importantly, he feels that he is entirely authorized to reveal to the to the Defense Department Inspector General's office anything that they have classified clearance to know about. Uh, and so that's one of the questions. We need to find out what levels of clearance the Inspector General's people are going to be given to try to figure out how to establish some more effective protocol for the Defense Department in dealing with UFOs. This is an extraordinary point in history that's going on. Things are very fluid right now. Mm. Uh, but, con but Congress isn't going to do anything but carefully carry out some choreographed theater uh, to, to release nothing more to the public than they absolutely are compelled to do. They're in the process of trying to get to be brought in as members of the club, uh, which they know they're not right now. Okay, let me ask a personal question, if it's not violating any confidences. How did you wind up representing Elizondo? Lou called me and asked me to represent him. Ah. He, 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 knew, he knew that I was the attorney for the Disclosure Project. Uh, he knew that I was uh, John Mack's attorney, Dr. Mack at Harvard University, in the 18-month-long confrontation uh, we had with Harvard about them uh, threatening uh, John. Uh, for publishing a book about the UFO and the ET phenomenon. Uh, and and uh, Lou knew that I was legal counsel 
uh, with the with the Citizens Commission, the Steve and the folks that put together in 2013. So he knows he knows exactly who I am, uh, and that uh, he and I have extremely uh, open and candid conversations with each other uh, about what it is that's going on, the trans historical nature of the time period that we're in right now, uh, and he is he is exercising great care. Uh, in the discussions he has with the Inspector General staff and the type of press interviews he gives, whether it's the New York Times or 60 Minutes or to the Associated Press, because that's that's what's really driving this whole dynamic. Uh, and, and right now, Lou is in the driver's seat, uh, and he's got other people that are working with him, such as Chris Mellon uh, and others. Uh, there, there are other people who 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 profess to be interested in getting more information out to the American people and to the people of the world. You know, Hal Putoff is involved uh, in this. Uh, Steve Justice is involved in this. Uh, even Jim Simivan is involved in this from the Central Intelligence Agency. It's not clear yet. I haven't, I haven't had uh, uh, extended conversations with any of them other than Chris Mellon uh, right now in my capacity as Lou's attorney. But they know perfectly well uh, what what we're all doing uh, in in the community that's been working on this. I've been involved in this since 1977 when I was asked to be special counsel to the uh, the, the classified report that was being provided to President Jimmy Carter on the UFO issue and extraterrestrial intelligence. So I've, I've been at this since then, uh, and so everybody knows that. I haven't been very shy about this. <laughs> no, um, you are not so, shy. <laughs> so, you know, so when Lou, Lou called me and asked me to come and talk with him, and we had a number of, of face-to-face uh, lengthy conversations, and he decided that he did, he knew exactly what I wanted to do, and he asked me to be his counsel on this. And I'm the one that worked with him to help craft his complaint uh, to the Defense Department. And uh, I'm the one that meets with the inspector general uh, and their staff, uh, his staff, her, uh, his staff right now uh, with Lou. Uh, and this process is well underway right now. And we've had we've had uh, meetings with three different subdivisions of the inspector general's office and, uh, and plan to have more directly face to face in Washington, D.C. So would you say that there are two tracks to public disclosure of things that the American people really need to know. One is the congressional, you know, Senate House hearing track, and the other is the inspector general in the DOD track. Yeah, but, but there's but there's there's another one, of course, which is the the degree of revelation that is being made by people who have had encounters uh, with UFOs and with some of the occupants of the UFOs. That's an entire track that's been going on. It's a very uh, comparatively effective track. Uh, and if, in fact, the Defense Department and the Central Intelligence Agency is going to, in fact, step back from their campaign of trying to excoriate and destroy the reputations of people who have had these experiences, we have a third track, therefore, unfolding of people who are very credible people law enforcement officers, military people, uh, others that are involved in revealing to the public what they know about this. And, of course, there's a fourth track, which is the extraterrestrial beings themselves. You know, I mean, that's always the, the, the $64,000 question is, you know, that what is it that they want revealed about themselves? You know, what steps are they willing to take? 
it's it's quite remarkable now that in comparative recent times from 2004 to 2014 where you have these craft appearing daily you know all around our nuclear facilities all around our our military aircraft and our our military uh, uh sea, sea craft you know we have them appearing every single day you know we've got we've got photographs of these that the pilots are taking with their own personal cameras out of their the cockpit windows mm. they're no more than 100 feet away you know we we aren't having to rely upon these grainy how come uh, we're not seeing any of these then well you will you will when yeah what, what time is it now uh, <laughs> it's 11:25 mountain time on sunday night the 4th of july well it won't be long because because i've seen them uh in the and i i i know the guys that have got them uh and they're not classified uh and that uh, we're intending to make those available let me let me uh come at this from another angle i want to come back to steve because to me the real bona fides of the congressional process, and Steve, I want you to address this directly. The reason I brought up the BBC report, which inverted the, you know, the DNI thing, which said nothing about aliens, and they basically said, well, they didn't say they didn't see them, and so they're moving on that track. To me, this is so exemplary of Roddenberry's law, which is if a phenomenon is real and kind of you know broadly – looming out what he told me in private about the ruins on Mars. He said, Dick, if this was real, it would be on television. Well, the phenomenon of UFOs has been castigated for three quarters of a century by every level of officialdom. The fact that you now have a Pentagon series of videos authenticated as real, you've got people like Elizondo testifying to major news media I led this program for eight years. We looked at this and this and this, and we came to these conclusions. And then you have a, a congressional track where you're going to have witnesses in front of committees talking about threats to national security by means of DOD information that is unassailable technically because it's on which our national defense is based. And I'll get to John Brennan and uh, uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson's comments on an NBC show about this the other day in, in a moment. Where are we with hearings? And do you think that the hearing process by authenticating the subject will open a floodgate to where people who believe they've had contact with extraterrestrials suddenly will be looked at in a totally new light? Well, that, that, that was my point to the third the third uh, track here on Revelation is that with with this change in uh, demeanor uh, on the part of at least some officials in the Defense Department uh, and uh, and and more people in the higher echelons of the political party, such as Podesta and the other people, that if in fact the American people come to change their their mode of receptivity to this information. Uh, given the fact that people in, quote, positions of authority, like the New York Times and the Defense Department and 60 Minutes, have actually removed the stigma of talking about this, this, this third, uh, this third uh, line, this third pathway, is going to be uh, much more credible, uh, and more people are going to be paying a lot more attention to it, and it's going to have a very substantial effect 
upon increasing the credibility of this so that people will go from 65% of the people who believe that UFOs are real and that they're piloted by extraterrestrial beings, we're going to get up over 75 to 80% of the people that are going to believe this. Uh, and that's the kind of pressure you have to put on the Congress in order to get them to do something real. Uh, they're not going to do it. They're not going to do it without the citizen pressure. They're just not going to do it. Which is a, a crucial component in a <clears throat> so-called democratic republic, which is hanging by a thread. My guests this morning are Danny Sheehan. His credentials are on the other side of Midnight website. Just go check him, check him out. And Steve Bassett, who's been an activist and a, a firm, resolute soldier in the uh, uh, campaign for disclosure and the end of the truth embargo for as long as I've known him, which now is decades. You are on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We're going to get into the substance of what could be happening in the next few days, weeks, and by the fall when we return. Don't touch that dial. Midnight.com. Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 cents a day. Talk radio with pictures on demand. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone. Sunday night, July 4th, 2021. My guests this morning are Danny Sheehan, who is a well-known constitutional litigator, has been involved in major cases over the last several decades, which have changed American history in the direction of this extraordinary experiment in absolutely verifiable, completely documentable ways. So his, uh, his interest, his passion, and his commitment to the truth is unassailable. As you heard in the last segment, he was uh, uh, called by uh, one of the key players in this current UAP slash UFO drama, the guy who led the Pentagon investigation, the $22 million program initiated by uh, a senator from Nevada, Harry Reid, to look into potential problems in terms of national security and has been absolutely critical in the release of at least three official videos from uh, gun camera footage 
uh, infrared, et cetera, et cetera, from F-18 showing extraordinary vehicles performing in extraordinary fashion uh, around uh, U.S. carrier fleets on both coasts going back uh, at least to uh, uh, 2004. So, um, gentlemen, uh, let me go back to Steve. You initially said when we talked about this some months ago that you foresaw hearings would take place in the spring. Well, obviously, the spring is past, and there are other current political developments like the establishment of the January 6th Select Committee, which are obviously going to be impinging on any timelines. But given that we're looking at a summer of vacation and the Congress not coming back until the fall, when in your estimation do you think hearings, and I want you to bring in some comments from some congressional members that I've seen in print, uh, when do you think those hearings, if they take place, will take place in Washington? And, and the question is, when is that likely to happen? It could happen tomorrow. Uh, so there's a – what's happening here is, is can't be simplified that way. We have time. Tell us the There complexity. is a, a strategy that is underway here, which I'm comfortable with, and I'm happy to relay it, but it's not exciting. So I have to warn people to make it bored. <laughs> uh, the, uh, the, uh, again, the, the, the Department of Defense might have been surprised by the To the Stars Academy when it was announced. I think a lot of the military intelligence complex was surprised. They had three and a half years to get caught up, and – uh, they might have been vaguely surprised when Rubio decided to make that move by putting the language in the appropriations bill, but they've had a year since they knew about that. So I, I am I'm I'm pretty confident that there is a very clear strategy being followed here, and there's some rules of engagement. Uh, the Department of Defense nobody want, wants to spill any beans to the public. Um, they they definitely don't want to do that because it, nothing but bad can come from that. They want to give it to the Congress. Congress doesn't want to spill any beans because that's that's a problem. They want the witnesses to do that, right? And that's the way it's supposed to happen. And right now it's playing out pretty much along those lines, given there have been some disruptions and political issues as well as the pandemic is not uh, still is still hanging in there and and trying to cause problems. But they, they executed the first part pretty well. They got the classified reports into four committees, the four key committees, with plenty of time for them to review it. Uh, they uh, then distracted almost the entire media away from that by putting a focus on this June 25 report or assessment, which was not going to have much in it. And what it did have in it was leaked already to the New York Times. If you review the New York Times article, you'll find that the statements in there about the uh, assessment of the craft and not having any ex extraterrestrial uh, evidence uh, was not referring to the annex. It was referring to the general report. Later on, they do mention the annex, that, that there was an annex. So they leaked initially the two key points of this very brief assessment. The brief assessment came out. It disappointed a lot of people, but it generated a lot of press, a lot of public action, which is fine. No problem for the, uh, for the DOJ. Now, the next step is uh, – and, and also they, they gave the public something to look forward to. 90 days down, we're going to give you another report. 90 days is a long time from now. Um, so right now, 
any one of the committee chairs could call for a hearing, uh, but the Senate chairs are, are in recess. So they can't call for a hearing, not likely to, until they come back. That's on the 12th. So, and then they're going to be in session all the way to August 7th. Uh, so, and, and the Senate intel is, I think everybody understands, it's the lead committee here. Andre Carson got a little ahead of his skis when he, when he called. I think we need to hold some hearings because I, I, don't, I don't think he's the one supposed to have said that. But whatever. He showed that there's wait, wait, For those that don't know, Andrew Carson is a congressman, not a senator. And the report right. was delivered to the Senate committee. And... No, it was delivered to the Senate and to the House. Ah, okay. Yes. And so he, he indicated – and he, he's a very powerful guy. He's, the, he's on the uh, House Intel Committee, and he's the chairman of the subcommittee on counterterrorism uh, and so forth and counterintelligence. And so he, so he kind of spilled the – he sort of let a cat out of the bag by saying, we, we'll hold hearings on this. Didn't say when. I think that was either Rubio or Warner's prerogative, but nevertheless, uh, the House is going to be out a little bit longer than the Senate. But the Senate will be back in the 12th all the way to the, to the 7th. I think there's a very good possibility they're going to uh, call for hearings. Now, there's another part of the strategy that I think the Department of Defense is playing quite nicely. The Department of Defense knew far well that this was going to leak, and they want it to leak. In fact, if anything, giving that leak to the New York Times on June 3 was a way of saying, hey, it's okay, leak, it's all right, no big deal. So they want it to leak. Uh, and again, because it, it, if it comes from anything that comes out of the House or the Senate, it's not coming directly from them. They do not want to get in the uh, giving the, uh, the, you know, the, the golden calf to the public. They want to stay out of this. They want to see us helping and being part of the process, but it is not their prerogative to be telling us these core truths. That goes to the president. The president is actually the person that's supposed to spill the beans. Not the DOD, not the ONI, not the Senate Intel Committee. It is the president that's supposed to do this. And the trick is, how do you get it on his desk? Well, you got to get hearings. So I think they're making progress there. It looks good. Now, there's already been possibly one very significant and, – and really leak is – I guess you could call it a leak. I don't like the term whistleblower. I don't think there's any whistles being blown here. Uh, none of the witnesses are whistleblowers. I don't like that term. I think it misrepresents the situation. Uh, but uh, we'll call that a leak. There has been maybe a significant leak, and it went to Richard Dolan, which is not surprising. Now, Richard got this from one of his sources who got it from somebody inside Congress, as he was told. He has no way to confirm it, and so consequently, it is simply an unconfirmed, quote, possible leak from the annex, okay? Now, this is the classified addendum the to classified the 73 page There were somebody – and remember, there's a lot of members of those committees. You've got two, you've got two very large House committees, and you've got the two uh, intel committees. You've got staff, a lot of people. Now, Richard felt confident enough to go ahead and put it out in the, on, on his show two days ago. Uh, again, unconfirmed. But I'm going to read it to your audience right now and let them make up their mind. Again, this is something that was told to – his source, who then wrote it down and sent it to Richard, who reviewed it and made the decision, I'm going to put this out, and he did in his podcast, and this is what he received. Uh, it's not long. The classified portion of the UAP report given to the select, mem mem uh, select number of congressmen and senators – it should say congresspersons and senators mm – -hmm. relates to the following. Energy, Paulson 
energy pulse propulsion systems projects, ion propulsion systems, and a gravity propulsion systems, and a matter propulsion systems, ramjet hydrogen propulsion systems, compressed nuclear propulsion systems, advanced use of exotic elements for energy research, in in the parentheses, ET-related items, and eight, the Kaesong Energy Propulsion System Research Project. Okay, that's a whole lot of propulsion systems there, and if it if if that is valid information, then I think a whole lot of members in the House and Senate just learned about some things they didn't know. But then comes the final paragraph, and this is the killer. All these highly classified projects are under the control of the Defense Advanced Research Project Agency, DARPA, and being managed by a classified group called Advanced Group 6. All funding for these projects is black confidential funds appropriated under intelligence operations costs. Some funds come from private contractors. Prototypes of flying craft utilizing the above technology are being flown at Area 51 and Tonopah Air Force Base test range. And here comes the killer. Some of the UAPs observed in and around Nevada can be, and it should say attributed to, but it has a typo, can be contributed, but it should (laughs) say attributed to crafts using the above propulsion systems. However, none of the experimental crafts have flown outside the Nellis test range and training range. None of these experimental crafts can be attributed to the sightings photographed by the U.S. Navy. Now, let me be clear. If this is, in fact, a, a written-down account of something provided by somebody in either House or Senate, they've got the briefings, you could see why it could be a little rough around the edges, might have a couple of typos. Uh, it has some, uh, would you say, gravitas to it, but it's no, certainly not confirmable. But if it is true, it is profoundly significant. It means that uh, the Department of Defense has basically made the decision after three years of contemplation that, yeah, this has got to end, and we're going to help it happen, but we're not going to be the one to deliver the goods. And so they've informed them about some advanced propulsion systems. They've really possibly given away exactly what the latest tech they've got is because what tech we have or don't have is critical to the final conclusion by most people. Uh, is it alien or not extraterrestrial or not extraterrestrial? But in any event, that's some pretty heavy stuff there. They also acknowledge that some of that's already being tested over Area 51. Is that a big deal? I, I assure you the Russians and Chinese already know this. The Russians and Chinese probably know more about these programs than, uh, than our Congress does. Hmm. Uh, so that's important. And then they make it clear, and this makes total sense, and we have film to this effect, that these craft or these systems, these advanced systems, are only tested over the Nellis Range. They're not allowed to go flying around over Arizona or over our aircraft carrier groups. Off San Diego uh, so or, or – Off uh, San Diego. It's very significant. So this – this th- now, if, 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 if we get any more leaks like this, and we may, and I think we will, and I think, the, I think the Department of Defense wants that because the game is to get hearings. And in order to do that, you've got to generate media, and they've certainly done that. You've got to get public interest. They've outside the lines. As I said, it is the president's job to confirm the extraterrestrial presence. And so you do it by having hearings 
and the hearings will be military witnesses, and they're not going to have any Well, you guys are both saying the same thing. You're saying that the hearings are a carefully orchestrated kabuki theater. No, I'm not saying that. No? I'm not saying that. I'm saying that there is a thought-through strategy to get these hearings, and these hearings will be military witnesses, and they're not going to turn the military witnesses into a bunch of kabuki puppets. These are men, maybe some women, who have served their country. Most of them will be retired. They, they took an oath when they served. They took an oath when they sit down at that table. And they are going to relate information like what uh, Braver has related and his, the other pilot and others. But then there's a whole bunch of nuclear weapons tampering military people. They're going to talk about that. And they are not going to be forced into some scripted deal. They're not going to go along with that. But they don't have a problem, and I'll tell you why. Because – a member of Congress can ask a military witness anything he wants or she wants, anything, right? Uh, and you can choreograph that away maybe if everybody gets together ahead of time. But if anything has been shown over the last couple of years is that these, these, these hearings are not choreographed that much because the outrageous behavior that takes place is beyond choreographing. It's clearly gut actions on the part of people that simply want to cause trouble. So will that happen here? No. It's a nonpartisan issue. It's not Democrat or Republican. It's an extremely positive thing. There will be massive press and massive audience watching it, and everybody's going to be in their best behavior. And if any of those military witnesses are asked a question which they cannot tell the truth to or requires that they violate an NDA or classified status, all they will say is, Senator, uh, I, I'm not able to answer that question uh, in this public forum. However, I'm happy to answer it in private briefing, and that's that. And so that should go very well. And so essentially this is all unfolding very well. If the leaks keep coming, the pressure on the, on the uh, – particularly on the Senate and on Rubio and Warner – uh, from the media, from the public, as you say, they're holding three-hour uh, Zoom meetings to discuss this ad infinitum. I mean it's really getting rocking and rolling. I've never seen anything like it. No, this was a national years. television special. I know, I know, and there's more stuff coming. There's some major things coming in the media I can't even talk about. Let me tell you, you haven't seen anything yet. It's going to be a fire hose of content coming from every direction. I think we've been D saying this for quite a while, All Stephen. the way up to A-list. Stephen, what, we've, been, we've been saying this for quite a while. This I know. ultimately I'm, will not be controllable. Let me, let me go back to Dan. Well, I say it, it, it's controllable to a point. What I'm saying is, is that when they return on the 12th to the Senate, by then there's already going to be an even – more, some more leaks from the, the, uh, the annex come out. It's going to be difficult for, for Warner or Rubio to say, okay, well, look, yeah, yeah, we think you should have some hearings. I don't know, maybe late in the winter, maybe after the first of the year. I don't think so. I think they're going to have to act pretty quickly. So I'm going to say July 14, 15, 16, 17, they, they call the hearings, and you need about 10 days. Hmm. That's all they need to put it together. So you could use that framework, but anything can happen. But the most important thing is this. The strategy is coming together nicely. It is not casual. It is very orchestrated in the sense that they are getting what they want and well, what they want. Right, maybe you, maybe you misunderstood, want. but when I said Kabuki Theater – what I mean yeah. is, and I'm, I'm you know, paraphrasing what Danny said, and I want to bring you back in in a moment here, Dan. Um, my feeling from the get-go, going all the way back <clears throat> to the New York Times story in December of 2017, this is all orchestrated.
because it's steamboat time. Somewhere at some level, a switch was thrown and the individual players are playing their part, but they're not, they're not initiating a revolution. They're carrying out a policy which has been decided far above their pay grade. And if everybody, as you said, Steve, minds their P's and Q's and follows their script, there will be disclosure, but on the terms that the invisible guiding hand wants, not in the incredible – in other words, going back to Ehrlichman, it will be a limited controllable hangout, not a free-for-all. I'm not there with you on that. Uh, I see it a little differently. Okay, let me uh, let me let me ask I'm, Danny what he thinks. Let me let me let me just let me just uh, okay. respond. Go ahead. Uh, I think it's very clear that the To the Stars Academy was not conceived at the high level by the top people of the Pentagon or the CIA or anybody else. That this emerged from private interactions with people inside who had sentiment that it was time to end the truth embargo. And they came up with an idea to create a private, a non-government, a, I say a private organization, which ended up being the To the Stars Academy. And they put it together. They made some approaches to the Clinton campaign because they thought she was going to win. And it was all moving along pretty well. And then it all blew up and they had to reconstruct. But uh, the, the most of the, the military intelligence complex was caught with their pants down when they when they came out on October 11th so badly that when Gao, uh, the uh, the spokesperson over the Pentagon's front office, was confronted about this, she didn't know what to say. She made about four or five incorrect statements because she just didn't know. She didn't know about ATIP. And so that, so it's not that orchestrated. Now, what you've been seeing since they launched on October 11th uh, was, one, first of all, they didn't get shut down. And I assure you, a lot of people inside the MIC would have loved to move quickly and shut them down. But before they could get their act together, they already had the story into the New York Times. Once those stories come out, MIC, still going back. MIC being military, military industrial, industrial complex. complex. So what you've been okay. seeing for the last three years is various individuals, retired, active agencies, some military services, pick your, your acronym, are figuring out what was started, where it's going, and deciding how they're going to interact with it. They've had three years. They've kind of decided how to go for it. Uh, everybody's sort of lining up. It, it turns out the pandemic may have been helpful there because the initial plan would have been a slam dunk in five months. would have been a little jarring. Well, we've had plenty of time to see this coming. And so I am very optimistic that we are on the right track. Now, there is another front to this activity, and that involves Lou and the, and the IG, as Danny has talked at length about. And they're dealing with certain issues over there, and that's fine. That's okay. In a way, it's another form of pressure. Lou is uh, not going to go away because he served an un undercover in almost every dangerous spot in the world, and I don't think he can be intimidated. But uh, ultimately, it is the fundamental strategy which presents the Intel Committee the opportunity to call the hearings, bring in the witnesses. They give the testimony, which presents the president the opportunity to finally confirm, just confirm, the extraterrestrial presence. What we learn after that in the post-disclosure world is a whole other discussion. Okay, Danny? Yes, <laughs> I'm here. Well, you have an open field. What is your assessment? Because, again, my prejudice has been, from the get-go, this has been an organized effort with some speed bumps because of real-world politics like Trump as opposed to Hillary, et cetera, et cetera. But if, if an independent group could be formed to basically blow the whistle, why in the last 75 years didn't somebody think of this before and do something before 
and pull aside a senator like Reed and get a dollop of money to kind of put it on the on the on the board. In other words, to me, this feels like an orchestration A B C with an outcome that's almost foreordained. We just have to wait to see how it unfolds because the script is already written. Am I wrong? Am well, I-, I would say I would say this is that you know having having spent about twenty years in Washington D.C. Uh, half of that as legal counsel for the Jesuit order, as you guys all know, uh, in the social ministry office there, where we were dealing with public policy, meeting with the senators, meeting with the House people, meeting with their staffs all the time. Uh, it, it became clear, and this is, this is the, the domain of Stephen now. He's, he's spent the time uh, in Washington in that milieu. Uh, and there's there's a whole lot of things that you can say uh, about this, and one of them is is that the the government system that we have certainly does not function the way we've been taught in our high school civics courses that it does that it is supposed to, uh, and it doesn't it doesn't even perform in the way we were taught at college or law school. <laughs> uh, it, it turns out that there is a a national security state overlay uh, on the functioning of our government. Uh, and it, and it, uh, this is, you know, it, it's come to the fore in the National Security Act of 1947 that created the formal CIA and these other uh, national security state agencies. But, but the, the control of the policies of our United States government uh, has been uh, subject to the control of very powerful and wealthy forces uh, in this country, at least since the robber baron era uh, that we all know about. And, uh, and it's, it's clear to me that there is, uh, with regard to the most sensitive and important matters of, of our government, both domestic policy and international policy, uh, there is a level uh, of, uh, of elite governance that takes place in our country uh, that is above the Constitution. Uh, it's exterior to the Constitution. Uh, and, and it really is, is the, uh, the upper hand that has been obtained in the dialectic that has gone on ever since the tensions between Alexander Hamilton uh, and, uh, and uh, James Madison in the formation of the Constitution itself. Because as you'll recall, the, the three articles of the Constitution were crafted uh, and put in and in, in ratified in, in 1789. And it wasn't until 1791 that the Bill of Rights was passed and ratified. So you saw that the Constitution came into being in two different phases. Uh, and in the first phase... It was dominated by the Hamiltonians. And Alexander Hamilton, aside from being a, a cute mu- musical, you know, it, it was, <laughs> was, in fact, was in fact the lawyer for the kind of mercantilist uh, and the financial interest, the commercial interest uh, in the colonies. The power uh, brokers of the day. That's right. That's right. Uh, the financial elite. Uh, actually, the royalists. There, there were an awful lot of uh, Tories there that actually thought that the government ought to be set up here in the United States to be very much like it was in England, mm-hmm. uh, actually advocated that the president 
uh, George Washington be uh, chosen for life. Uh, it would be sort of a semi-monarch, uh, and it was it was a it was to be dominated by kind of an aristocratic class. Uh, and that that group of people had, came to dominate in the United States Senate. Uh, in the, but the other ones were the Madisonians, uh, led by James Madison. They're often referred to as the Jeffersonians, but it's actually James Madison that was the head of that group. And it, it's important to a thing a thing that most people don't know anything about at all, and and that is the fact that that uh, uh, James Madison, uh, as well as Aaron Burr. Uh, were trained by a man by the name of J- uh, J- John Witherspoon. John Witherspoon taught uh, moral theology at the, the College of New Jersey, which later became Princeton University. Uh, but it oh, he, just... he, he and two colleagues came in as a late delegate to the Continental Congress when they were arguing about the Declaration of Independence. That's absolutely right. But it's important to remember that in addition to James Madison and Aaron Burr, Aaron Burr being the one, as you may remember, who killed Alexander Hamilton yep. <laughs> in a duel. Uh, that uh, in addition to uh, James Madison and Aaron Burr, there were 37 of the original federal judges were all students of, of Witherspoon. Oh, interesting. Uh, three of whom were United States Supreme Court justices. Tw- uh, 21 of the original United States senators were all students of Witherspoon. Oh, and my. 39 members of Congress, original members of Congress, were all students of, of John Witherspoon. And John Witherspoon is the one who taught about natural law. Uh, so all of those, those uh, the, all that energy that's in the United States Constitution having to do with fundamental human rights and the evolution of consciousness and the evolution of more and more people being able to participate in, the, in self-governance, et cetera, has all been part of the Madisonian a movement uh, of these people that were trained by by John Witherspoon, and on the other side of that dialectic are the Hamiltonians, who are the elitist, aristocratic uh, royalists, uh, the Tories that, that wanted to have an aristocracy here. Could there uh, now, be a more appropriate time than on the evening of July Fourth to have this incredible well, background insight? Well, that's why that's why this is so important. It's, it, with only 60 seconds left, so we, we have to jump out at the top of the hour. <laughs> let me just introduce this subject. The fact of the matter is that these Hamiltonians had gained the upper hand during the right after the American Civil War. In the Civil War, they ended up winning. Uh, they were the mercantilists, the urbanists, et cetera, the, the engine, the union. And they rose into the ascendancy at the end of the Civil War and initiated the robber baron era which generated that entire monopolization of the economy of our country, you know, with like 50 families. Uh, and I'll, I want to attract those for us when we come back on the other side of the top of the hour to, to show that this issue has to be addressed. If you're talking about dealing with an issue that is of the high sensitivity of, of the containing of the technology that's generic to the UFO phenomenon. And so that we want to talk about that at the other side of the break here at the top of the hour. Perfect. Perfect segue. My guests this morning are uh, Danny Sheehan and Steve Bassett, and we're discussing nothing less than a second revolution, going back to the origins of the Constitution of the United States and these two kind of opposing points of view, the elites versus the common people 
and do they deserve to know the truth? Because in this game, as you're going to hear in the last hour, knowledge is power. And by preventing the knowledge of the basis and technology and background of the entire UFO phenomenon for three quarters of a century, one segment, the so-called deep state, has controlled the power which will ultimately wind up with nothing less, in my opinion, than a second American revolution. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Want to know how to get the other side of midnight.com? Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone, to the other side of midnight. Sunday morning here in the land of enchantment in the desert with a uh, sliver of a waning crescent moon just rising in the east. I mean, the desert is a gorgeous place to live. We're talking this morning about nothing less, I believe, going back to some of Danny's comments just before the break, than a, a, a forcing function which will expose the dichotomy between the elite's and the general citizenry and at stake is nothing less than the power to change the destiny of humans on planet Earth and beyond. And there's a wild card that I'm going to talk about at some point in this last hour. Uh, but let me get back to Danny. Danny, you, you wanted to continue with your thoughts because because I, I, I think this is a very important point to understand. This is a fundamental schism in the very fabric of the Constitution, openness or control of knowledge and power. Well, it's interesting because it's, it's not so much a schism, uh, Richard, as it is a dialectic. Uh, and this, this dialectic, this tension that exists between the kind of highly educated, very wealthy, elite, kind of aristocratic element within our community uh, and the, the working class people, the, the, the people that are the oppressed people, the, the people who are slaves, brought here as slaves, people who have 
who have uh, fled their countries from Central America, where the major corporations that came to dominate our economy during the Robert Barron era, you know, uh, established colonial power of the corporations in Central America and South America. That that this this dynamic that's going on is is one of a tension, a potential creative tension, because the 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 muscle up of the the muscling up of our country as a major global power uh is setting aside whether one agrees with or doesn't agree with it but the 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 fact of the matter is a significant plurality of people in the united states kind of enjoy being the number one power on the planet uh they enjoy the benefits of you know, our country uh, being uh, gaining access to 51% of the non-renewable resources on the planet that are developed into products every single year. Uh, if, in fact, there were only a fair distribution on the part of the elite down into the proletariat and the average working class people, a, a substantial majority of our people would probably go along with that process. And And so once in a while, the elite get out of balance and they overreach and they, they garner unto themselves too much wealth and power and they allow the rest of the people to start drifting into, into poorer and poorer circumstances. And then a, a pressure builds to try to reestablish the balance. So it's, it's not a matter of one or the other attempting to completely vanquish the other. It's an attempt to establish some sort of a, some sort of a healthy harmony between the two. Because the simple fact is that without the entrepreneurial spirit and creativity of well-educated people who, in fact, know how to use resources and develop natural resources, if they could only constrain themselves uh, more, which they don't, uh, and therefore we have to have capacities through our Constitution to constrain them. That's the whole point of our Constitution, is to attempt to rein in and constrain the kind of creative uh, thrust of this type of elite uh, so that it benefits everybody in the community. The fact of the matter is uh, that is always at play. It's always at play in any dynamic that's going on here. And as I pointed out just in passing in one of the earlier hours of this, that when when the uh, the uh, United States military at the end of World War II came to discover the gold that had been buried in the Philippine Islands, that $1.2 trillion of this was extracted. And Truman at that time set up a trust I told you about called the Anderson Trust. And that I pointed out that two of the three trustees on that extra extra you know, extra constitutional uh, commission uh, or trust were two senior partners from the from the private investment firm of Brown Brothers Harriman. Brown Brothers Harriman was were the clientele of Brown Brothers Harriman was basically the top 50 families who rose to power in the robber baron era, uh, gaining monopoly control over the steel and the iron, the uh, railways, the shipping routes, the agriculture, uh, the livestock industry. That these all got to be under the control of some 28 to 50 families. They were all clients of Brown Brothers Harriman, uh, this private investment firm in New York. And you've got to remember, the CEO of Brown Brothers Harriman was George Herbert Walker. Oh, my, my, and, my. And, and the attorney for Brown Brothers Harriman was Alan Dulles. Uh, in the law firm of, uh, of Sullivan and Cromwell, uh, one of their other senior partners. Well, was so John- there is your deep state. Look, I, I want to bring Steve back in because I understand yeah. he's not 
feeling tip-top tonight and may have to leave us. But, Stephen, you had some thoughts. Unmuting helps. Stephen? He may have, he may be, may be feeling that good at all for a moment here. Uh, there I you got this. There got a bad mouse. Uh, yeah, I just want to make one point, and then I got to go because I've, I've had a rough two weeks, and it's uh, two a.m. here, and I'm 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 dying here. Uh, and and this it's a simple point, uh, and, and it's this: the, the the fundamental goal of the civil rights movement was to get a civil rights act and a voting rights act. It wasn't to end racism in the South because that was not possible, and it would take God knows how many generations, if if ever. Uh, which is to say that the number of racist uh, people in the in the segregated areas of the South, uh, or anywhere else in the country, I was just going to say they, it's all over the country, not just the yeah, South. Yeah, all of the country. It wasn't just the South, but obviously there was a focus there. The, the, the number of racists was the same the, the day after those laws were passed as it was the day before, and that's the task before the advocacy movement here, the disclosure advocacy movement. Whatever control the national security state exercises beyond its prerogative or in other aspects of our culture or whoever is got power wherever and however and however they use it that's going to be true the day before disclosure is going to be the true the day after our job is to get disclosure anyway in other words we can't we cannot completely restructure the entire american system uh, easily. That's going to take some time. But can we get disclosure in spite of that? Yes, we can. And it's happening. It's complicated. It's difficult. It's taken a while, but I think it's taking place. Uh, I have to, I'll, I will leave, at least for now, the restructuring of the American system, uh, the realignment <laughs> of power, and everything else, uh, to uh, smarter people than I. Uh, I'm just an advocate and an activist. The job is to get disclosure. We're practically there. And I try to keep my focus on the prize and not overcomplicate what is already a tough job. So anyway, always great to be with you. And of course, Danny, love Danny. And, uh, uh, I'll, uh, I'll be, I'll be looking forward to doing some more shows, but, uh, I, I think we're going to have an amazing, uh, 60 days for sure. And, uh, I'll be, uh, doing my part to try to follow it all as closely as possible. Great. Steve. All great. right. Thank great you, place. Steve. I'll, I'll talk to you in a day or so. Oh yeah. Sure. Okay. Catch up. Okay. Okay. Mr. Sheehan, then it falls to you to answer this question. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I wish Steve felt better so we could hang around. But, but, you know, he and I have had these long discussions going back decades. I'm involved in a totally different area that overlaps with the UFO UAP thing, which is extraterrestrial archaeology, which is a, uh, you know, we could do a million shows on that. In your opinion, big picture why is it essential to end this embargo, this sham, this multi-level set of lies about who's running around and who's out there and their relationship to us? What will that kick off in light of my rather dramatic statement that I think it's nothing less than the second American revolution? Well, I, I think that the, the, the key element in this is the global climate change. Uh, that that you that, uh, the, you talk to Barbara Lamb and others who have had uh, thousand two thousand three hundred and plus you know conversations with people who have had 
direct encounters, uh, which they, in their own sincere judgment, believe are members of an extraterrestrial civilization who are coming here on these uh, the UFO craft. And the, a substantial portion of those people talk about the UFO occupants talking about the need for two things, for us to eliminate the nuclear weapons and the private nuclear power plants that are threatening to contaminate our entire planet with deadly radiation. And the second one is to stop polluting our entire environment uh, in destroying the whole climactic system of our planet. Uh, there's the, the aerial school, as we all know about, over in Africa with the children that had the encounter with the, with the UFO beings. Uh, Randy is working on a, a documentary right now uh, about that, uh, having interviewed the children that saw this UFO and had this direct telepathic communication with these beings back in 1994. They're now grown up, and he's interviewed them and is going to be coming out with a documentary film about that. That, that we are, we are, people don't realize this. We are on the very brink of an absolute potential catastrophic period in our in our history here. That with the melting of the polar ice caps and the the pouring of billions and billions of gallons of water, uh, fresh water into the oceans, reducing the salination levels of our oceans and the density of the oceans will cause the underwater currents that carry the warm water from the Ecuador, the, the equator up into the temperate zone of our planets where most of our food is grown, uh, is the, these will dissipate and rise to the surface. Uh, the, these are the, the, the melting of the, of the permafrost areas of our planet that, that are suppressing literally trillions of tons of... I think... I think... I, sorry to interrupt, but I think Art Bell and um, uh, Whitley Strieber uh, wrote a wrote a book about that, and then it became a movie, and it talked about the overturning of the Gulf Stream and radical climactic, you know, preemptory within years uh, mm-hmm. changes in global climate. I mean, we're looking all over. We had 120 degrees in yep. southern Canada just the other day. If the handwriting isn't on the wall, okay, so we are facing a major planetary crisis and, and they have said so ets and then, have been saying but see this is my question if there is a prime directive if there is a non-interference doctrine a la my my old friend gene roddenberry why do not one of these et groups members of the family as i think i can document that ets yeah. are not necessarily aliens we have relatives out there why do they not form a secret corporation, create a, quote, um, nonlinear free energy technology, market it through Walmart and Kmart and uh, Macy's and whatever, and transform the energy paradigm based on oil from the market, you know, the build the better mousetrap. In other words, if, if they believe we're facing dire extinction because of the trend curve of the elites, of the controllers of the oil companies of those that want to make trillions as opposed to you know keep the planet alive why don't they do something sub rosa to subvert that direction and change the trend curve all the while being hands off with no attributable extraterrestrial function 
Well, this, this is, as I, as I indicated earlier in our conversation, the $64,000 question. This is the fourth pathway of, of, uh, of disclosure. You know, we have to try to understand what the agenda is of the extraterrestrial civilization. You know, what exactly are their theories? What is, what is their position with regard to some prime directive? What is it that's causing them not to communicate with us uh, any more directly than they are? Uh, why is this process going on of individuals having direct communication with them, but not people in positions of high authority often? You know, what, what is it that's going on here? That what we need to do, the, the reason that I'm proposing establishing a new paradigm institute uh, at our Romero Institute, you know, we've had the Christic Institute, the Romero Institute that's been involved in these major lawsuits down through the years, you know, all the way from the Pentagon Papers case to the Watergate burglary to the Karen Silkwood case that stopped the, the construction of any new private nuclear power plants in the entire United States since 1979. We did the, the Three Mile Island case. We did the Iran-Contra case that stopped them from smuggling the weapons to the Conquers and the cocaine back in the United States. We, we've been doing these things for, for 45 years now. Uh, and this, this issue of the global climate change is so crucial right now that what it's done is it's opened up this pathway for us to try to establish direct communication with these extraterrestrial beings to not any longer rely upon this is where Stephen and I have our conversations. He, of course, has dedicated his life to getting the government institutions to disclose the information which they have about the extraterrestrial presence. What we're advocating is to supplement that essential process is to have a process pursuant to which we as citizens reach out to try to establish direct citizen diplomacy with the extraterrestrial beings to say that, look at, you know, that we, half of these people, I wouldn't, I wouldn't trust them in our government. You know, what are you going to trust <laughs> Richard Nixon or, or Dick Cheney or uh, Donald Trump or somebody? Are you, are, are you kidding? You know, we, we have got to take this into our own hands. We've got to demonstrate that we're capable of reaching out and establishing citizen diplomacy with the people from the extraterrestrial civilization to reach out to them and to, to rise. Yeah, but to wait, 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 Danny, Danny, there, there has been a fourth track going on for decades, and there's a guy I know very well. You know him, too. His name is Stephen Greer. I participated in his field exercises. Uh, Robin and I sat on a on a hotel roof all one night in uh, uh, southern Arizona. Um, the point is, the guys on the other side are not responding in any way that will meaningfully help the human race in time. Why not? Not yet. Not, not yet. But we don't know yet. We don't know. That what we need to do is we need to open all possible pathways. I think the pathway to the, the, the reason that I'm representing Lou Elizondo is because I believe that's a constructive pathway. I believe that our, our discussions with the Defense Department Inspector General's office, who has now who have come forward and said that they are engaged in undertaking an evaluation to try to determine what the protocols are pursuant to which the Defense Department has had any kind of response to the UFO phenomenon. Now, that's, that's a self-charge that the Inspector General has undertaken. That's an extraordinarily important mission. What we've got to do is try to get them to move from an evaluation stage to a full-scale investigation, to set up that institution inside our government structures to find out what the answer to these questions are. That's their job. 
you know, that if we can get them to perform their job and find out what's going on inside the Defense Department, there are dozens and dozens of high-ranking military officials who are really frustrated over the fact that they have not been briefed in on this particular issue. And yet Lou Elizondo is spending all that time, two years as the chief of security for the, for the ATIP program and eight years as the director. He said he's completely positive that the highest echelons of the decision-making authority in our government do not view these vehicles as a threat in any way. They're not conducting themselves in any way as though they believe them to be a threat. This is despite the fact that they come in and shut off our, our Minuteman missiles. Uh, they can they hover and they, they literally fly circles around our fastest aircraft. Uh, they are surveilling all of our major military facilities around the planet. And yet the highest echelons of our government do not perceive them to be a threat. Which implies they know a lot more That's than right. anyone thinks they know and they have made the decision or the decision has been made for them by the extraterrestrial uh, influences. Uh, and I'm going to bring up a general here in a moment that the human race as a whole should not know we are not alone. And here's the general. A few weeks ago, uh, the former head, I believe, of Israeli intelligence oh, yeah. uh, made yeah. some very uh, profoundly weird and controversial yeah. comments that the ETs themselves had prevailed upon uh, President Trump then to not disclose, which I understand from this source was in the works, because they didn't feel it was time. Well, if the planet is facing extinction, which we are, the numbers are there, why would they not want to intervene even in a covert way in a positive covert way, unless their real objective is to lull us into extinction. No, I don't. I don't. I don't know the answer yet. Uh, but but that's that's how all of the great investigations that I've been involved in in my life start. I don't know the answer, and I, I admit candidly, I don't know. And that's the only way you can start an investigation to find out the answer to that. Uh, and I'm, I'm using every single means I have, all the relationships I've developed over 50 years, uh, all the education I've had, uh, all the experiences I've had to try to find the answer to that question. Because I believe that it's absolutely essential for us to figure this out and, and try to approach all of the people, the people inside the government, the people inside the different political parties, the, the people inside businesses, the people inside the citizens groups all of us to reach out together collectively to demonstrate that we in fact deserve to have an answer to this question. But in order to do that, we have to get our own house in order uh, to, to know that there's this elite group of, of human beings that are manipulating and controlling the, the energy resources on our planet in a, in a manner that is contaminating our planet and destroying the life cycles of our planet we have to demonstrate that we're capable of organizing and putting these people out of power. We've got to be able to demostrate that in order to merit, merit uh, recognition on yeah, the part wait, of- Wait, 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 wait. There's a whole bunch of assumptions in what you just said. It's, oh, like, right. it's like someone's evaluating from off planet, the human race is not worthy of being saved or saving themselves unless they upset the power structure. 
that appears to be extraordinarily elitist and and almost uh, uh, pejorative in the sense that ordinary human beings rarely in history, the American Revolution being one of those times, and then it got caught in that bifurcation you discussed in the last hour, have rarely been able to take the reins from tyrants into their own hands and become self-governing. It's an extraordinary uh, effort requiring a huge number of people to agree. Well, if you look at the country these days, no two people can agree about almost anything, certainly in the political realm. So again, if your objective is to save humanity, why do not the ETs basically in a clandestine fashion bring some of these technologies to market? I mean, I know from personal experience, having had one of them for a while on my dining room table, that they exist. This is a technology which can do two things. It's unlimited space flight without rockets, and B, it's unlimited energy, which completely knocks the hole uh, out from under the uh, whole oil megastructure, which is killing the planet. If they really want us to survive, why are they waiting for us en masse to politically overthrow the oppressors, which is a long game, and we don't have a long amount of time left? That's the right question. That's the right question. Uh, in, the, the, in, order, in order to answer the question, you have to know the right question to ask. And that's the right question. And so that I believe that we have to try everything that we can do to mobilize every single element of our human family to work toward getting the answer to that question. And at the same time, we have to do everything that we can do to try to establish a genuine democracy in our country uh, pursuant to the principles of natural law. That is exactly what's been put in front of us with, with the, uh, the Madisonians. We understand the entire theories of natural law that were taught by Witherspoon at the College of New Jersey uh, in his moral theology course. That's why I was at Jesuit headquarters uh, in the largest single denomination in the entire planet, that we have to bring all of these institutions to bear now. This is the 11th hour. This is the 11th hour. And the, the fact that you and I are having this conversation right now with all of the people that are listening across the country and across the world is part of that process. And so that we have to push this forward. We all have to exercise great care. We can't, we can't leap to false conclusions. We can't, we can't overstate or, uh, or uh, it, uh, exaggerate what it is we know or what we don't know. We can't exaggerate information that we get. We need to be careful of our sources. Uh, but I've, I've been working at this for years, and I'm trying to bring to bear everything that I've ever heard, everything that I've ever known, everything that I've ever learned to try to solve this problem right now. And we have to reach out to each other as friends, as, as people who love each other and can work together to get this thing solved right now. This program is part of that. Uh, our meetings with the inspector generals, people are part of that. Our meeting with the congressional staff, people are part of that. Every single program that we go on to talk about this, the press, the media people are going to be critical in trying to get this thing done. And that's why we're setting up this, this, uh, this, uh, this new paradigm institute at the Romero Institute as a wholly integrated project. It's another one of the major investigations that we've, we've launched. Uh, and we're going to get to the bottom of this at the same time. 
We're drafting the California State Green New Deal. We have a 350-page statute. We're, we're hiring people going around the state to organize on the grassroots level in every assembly district and every state senate district to get this piece of legislation passed in California to demonstrate that this can be done in a practical way. Uh, this, we're doing everything that we can, and we, we reach out to everybody who's listening to do the same thing. You know, to, to do, do everything that you can do from the place where you are right now to step forward to try to work together to save our planet from the, from the global climate change, from the threat of nuclear weapons, to listen to the people, the extraterrestrial beings that have come and have communicated with us up to this point. We, we've got to try to find out from them what more it is that they're willing to do. Okay, uh, to, well, uh, we're, we're at the bottom of the hour, so I... I have to interrupt this for momentarily, but when we come back, I want to continue on the same vein, because that to me is the most important question of all. Why should ordinary people care if there are ETs, aliens flying around in our skies, if they literally have had zero impact on everyday living for most Americans, most citizens of the world for the last 75 years? You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. Danny Sheehan is my guest. And we're going to grapple with the most important question of all when we return. Why should we care? other side of midnight.com talk radio with pictures on demand liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought join club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Listen while you travel or as an environment for your endeavors. Eight cents an episode, two and a half cents per hour of content. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone. Last half hour on this July 4th, July 5th uh, program, which is dealing with something that I think is probably, and I think Danny Sheehan agrees with me, the most important single revolution in the history of humanity, which is that we be given the insight and the background and the history to solve our planetary problems and one doorway, one way that that might, in fact, uh, uh, take place is through revelation of an extraterrestrial presence. But as NASA has this very famous line, you know, no single point failure, 
I think one of the problems, and I want to bring you back in here, Danny, is I think one of the problems is that Stephen's approach has been a kind of a one single point failure. If the government doesn't officially announce that this reality is real, we can make no progress. And what I would like to see is a multi-pronged attack, because in addition to the technologies and the sociology and the anthropology, I know from looking at data from a number of different government space programs that the solar system is littered with the ruins of more than one ancient extraterrestrial civilization, and they somehow have a profound, or had, I should say, a profound connection to us, and it's been my prejudice for a number of years now that one of the prime reasons for the lack of disclosure on the UFO ET front is because that will reveal to the detriment of the elites who run Earth the fact that we are heir to something so much bigger and so much more magnificent, which has been co-opted by these select handful of families when, in fact, it is the heritage of all humankind. What do you think? Well, I, I think uh, I, I think that the, <laughs> the, the when I when I first was in high school, I was I was going to go to the Air Force Academy. Uh, and uh, I was the number one nominee for the state of New York for the senatorial appointment and went down to New York to talk with Senator Jacob Javits about the appointment. Uh, and when he asked me why I wanted to go to the Air Force Academy, I told him that I wanted to be an astronaut in 1963. And he said, of course you do. All young men do. And he said, why do you want to be an astronaut? I said, because I, I know that we're at this extraordinary point of reaching out to the stars to actually establish contact with an, our extraterrestrial neighbors. And he looked at me and said, you actually think that there's extraterrestrial life out there? And I said, well, sure, so do you. You're a United States Senator, you know, you know that. I said, you know, and he was so flabbergasted. Really? That he actually admitted to me that he had given the appointment to the son of one of his major funders and he couldn't give me the appointment. Uh, so I, I ended up going to Harvard College and then Harvard Law School uh, and practicing, uh, as you've, you've noted, they're doing the Pentagon Papers case, doing the case also that established the right of journalists to protect our confidential news sources, doing the Watergate burglary case, representing James, James McCord, getting to blow the whistle on Richard Nixon to get him impeached. I was doing all of that. And then I went back to divinity school. Uh, I actually went back to do a Ph.D. under John Rawls, who was the head of the Department of Philosophy, uh, because I had run into this this dialectic going on inside the American constitu constitutional system uh, between the the royalists, the elitists of the Hamiltonian set, and this other group of Madisonians, which he referred to, John Rawls, the head of the Department of Philosophy, referred to as the intuitionists. Uh, and so I came hmm. back to, to do a Ph.D. thesis in comparative social ethics, comparing and contrasting the social ethical systems of majoritarian utilitarians that are trying to serve their own direct self-interest uh, versus the intuitionists who have a larger uh, perception of, the, of, our, of our species and, and life on our planet. And I was doing my Ph.D. thesis there when I got recruited to become general counsel for the United States Jesuit order in Washington, DC. And we set about very quickly 
trying to figure out how to address this question. The very same one you've asked is that how do we deal with the fact that there's an extraterrestrial civilization here uh, and that uh, we are going ahead and allowing this elite portion of our human family to jeopardize our entire existence on our planet uh, in the face of this more extraordinary truth that surrounds us. That's how I ended up being uh, general counsel, uh, special counsel to the to President Carter's quest to ter- determine what the relationship was between the UFO phenomenon and extraterrestrial intelligence. It's how I ended up being John Mack's attorney at Harvard. It's how I ended up being the legal counsel for the Disclosure Project, et cetera. So I've been on this quest to try to figure out the answer to this question uh, since the very beginning. And uh, that I think that we, we have to, you know, remember back on in November uh, 11th, back in 2009, uh, Benedict, uh, Pope Benedict, uh, the Catholic Church, convened uh, world scientists uh, across the, the planet at Castle Gandolfo outside of Rome, where the Pontifical Observatory is. They held a long, week-long session of discussions about this issue. Uh, and then they went back to the Vatican and they issued an official statement by the Catholic Church, uh, Father Jose Gabriel Funes, who was the the uh, director of the observatory, the Pontifical Observatory at the time, issued the statement saying that in light of the discovery of more and more of these exoplanets, it's not, it has now become clear that much sooner than we had previously anticipated that we are going to encounter life elsewhere in the universe. And so therefore, the time has arrived to begin this extremely serious conversation among our people uh, to address the profound philosophical and theological questions that are posed to us by the discovery of life elsewhere in the universe. I reached out immediately in my previous capacity as general counsel <laughs> of the Jesuits to, to establish contact. That's with, a pretty uh, good connection. Okay. Yeah with Jose Gabriel Funes as the, the largest the largest denomination in all of the Catholic Church, the largest order, and as you know, one of the more significant, you know, that we represent most of the scholastics in the in the Catholic Church. Uh we represent the the uh, doctors of sacred science. We represent most of the diplomatic corps at the Vatican. And so that I reached out to him and uh within two minutes of my sitting face to face with him, he acknowledged that they're not talking about just discovering some single cell life form, you know, far beneath the of sea. Of course and not. Yeah. Yeah. They're talking about another highly intelligent, highly technologically developed, but distinctly non-human species. So right? then, well, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. Distinctly non-human? Yes. Because, see, my model is that we have relatives think. out there. Yeah, that, I know that, I, that, but there's no, there's no doubt that there are other species. That there's 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 human-like beings and there's other species and the 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 key the key is is that people are constantly struggling to try to maintain our human species of Homo sapiens as the pinnacle of all biological evolution in the universe. We've got to come to grips with the fact that that isn't so. That there are other civilizations, there's other species on other star systems that are literally okay. Billions so to the list, we should add. To the second American revolution, we're talking also about nothing less than a second Copernican revolution. Oh, absolutely. There's no doubt about that. 
There's no doubt about where we are right now in history. And uh, in that all these trains are coming into the station at the same time, Richard. It's, a, it's, it's not only that we're being confronted by this and the threat of nuclear weapons hanging over our heads still every single day, uh, tens of thousands of warheads that can destroy every single living being on the planet. That uh, We've got the, the global climate change, which is descending upon us rapidly. And this is, therefore, it is not coincidental that this is the point in time when we are stepping forward and pressing and pressing to get the answer to this question that you have asked. Why is it that the extraterrestrial beings do not yet find us worthy of reaching out and sharing with us some uh, insights, not necessarily just the technology. I mean, obviously, if they're afraid that if they give us the technology, we'll figure out some way to make a weapon out of it. You know, that, that you know the old, the old Sufi saying, when a pickpocket meets a saint, all he sees are his pockets. Well, you know, that's not an unbridled fear because <clears throat> we have an example. We have, courtesy of my, uh, you know, uh, former friend who's now no longer with us, Tom Van Flandern, Excellent evidence. There used to be another planet orbiting the sun, and it blew up. And Tom's model was it was a natural event. My model, it was part of an extraordinary cosmic war 66 million years ago. And so this technology, which can liberate the planet from greenhouse gases and give everybody, you know, a chicken in every pot, you know, melding our metaphors madly, also can wind up destroying the solar system in the hands of, you know, aboriginals like we are unless they're appropriate moral strictures the problem is you can't wait for moral you know adulthood to arrive before the planet kills us all and my question is since the the most important conflicts always seem to be in terms of human experience within families is there a controlling faction of the extraterrestrials including multiple species, some kind of, you know, galactic federation, which has seeded the future of Earth to those who we are related to out there. And they have quietly decided that we're too much of a bother and they've done everything they can to let us kill ourselves. You know, we we just don't know yet, Bridget. And and one of the things. So how to- are we going to know? What what well, do you have in mind? Because Robin and I years ago went on a very naive trip to Washington, and we went lobbying door to door to door. I had some contacts in the Congress, and I basically went and sat with congressmen and senators um, during the waning parts of the Bush administration. I think it was 2009 or so. And I proposed to these controllers of the purse that you guys just set up the Department of Homeland Security. And that went through in record time in 2011. I said, why don't you set up a department of the exterior, which Mm -hmm. would involve NASA and the extraterrestrial presence into one agency properly funded to do diplomacy, to do scientific research, to do outreach, and obviously practical, technical you know, attributions back to Earth to lift us out of the horrible trend curve we're currently on. And you know what I was told? Do it yourself. No. <laughs> I, was, I was told NASA is incompetent to be the foundation of yeah, such I, a department. Yeah, I understand. But the, the bottom line is, is that 
we've got to do it ourselves. That's the point. The whole point is we've got to do it ourselves. But do we have time? Danny, do we have time to do it ourselves? We've only been trying to do this for 75 years. And frankly, I don't think we're much ahead of where we were 75 years ago on the broad political front of pulling us up by our own bootstraps. Our, Our job, Richard, you and mine, and David's, and yes, yes, Stephen Greer's, and yes, others, you know, Richard Dolan, Linda Moulton, Howe, you know, all of us. We have to do this. We have to do this. And we have to stop asking the elite to do it for us, because that's exactly the problem. It's sort of like the gorilla that's got his hand inside the, the box holding onto the banana and won't let go of the banana and can't get his hand out of the box. You know, we have to stop asking the elite to do this for us, because that's the problem, because the elite will misuse the technology. They will. So what we've got to do is move forward with every single bit of talent we have, with every single bit of open-heartedness that we can muster, and with all of the allies that we can recruit through your program, through everyone else's program, through our new paradigm institute. What I want to do is establish this new paradigm institute based upon what I hope is the goodwill that I've been able to establish with people all through our community down through these 40 years of working all together. I don't believe I've made any enemies. I haven't tried to harm anyone in our community. We have to raise ourselves up and reach out and do this thing ourselves. And it includes having a diplomatic core. We've got to train ourselves for, this is what I was talking about with Dr. John Mack just before he was killed, that we were, we were training people who were regular contactees to actually do the holotropic breathing and to learn to calm Wait, 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 wait. sorry to interrupt. We only have 15 minutes and I want to get a few points on the, on the board here. Sure. If we're relying on extraterrestrials to to change the paradigm, to lift us no, up, no, no, to, no, no, to, no. To, to change the trend curve. No, we're relying upon ourselves. That's the key to this thing. It's like an EST program. I, I never took it, but I think I know what it's about. <laughs> like trying to pick up a hat. It's like, you know, they throw the hat in front of you, say, try to pick up the hat. And they bend down and pick it up. Well, and let, me, let me, let me, and, and again, sorry to interrupt, but we don't have a lot of time. I have had, a, this was not hyperbole, it was an overstatement. I had, I've now put it in a safe place. But I had a technology on my dining room table which mm-hmm. can take a self-funded, a citizen-funded, you know, a GoFundMe kind of spacecraft, a NASA yep. CubeSat, to take it to Pluto in three months, not 10 years, three months, go into orbit, go into close orbit, take close-ups of the extraordinary ancient arcologies littering its surface that were glimpsed by the New Horizon mission or the ruins on Mars or the ancient structures on the moon. In other words, a private space program that's at the price of like a couple of Mercedes as opposed to mega millions. And Mm -hmm. I cannot get the funding to even do the tests of the technology because the elites have created the bottleneck where if you don't have the funds, nothing happens. You know, the old no bucks, no buck Rogers. That's how they're keeping us down on the farm. And that's why Elon Musk is so interesting because in the face of this implacable official government resistance, somehow Musk has created a bootstrap conventional technology 
which if it has enough time is going to liberate humanity, my problem is, given the climate problem, we do not have enough time. Well, we, we, what we, every single great game is won in the last two minutes of the fourth quarter. <laughs> okay. So, that we, so you're that, saying that, the future is nonlinear. I agree, totally. That's right. You've got to understand that we, we are at that point now, and we have to lean forward on this thing and step out into the darkness and, and, and bring the light with us. That's what we've got to do. And the, so that, that's what I'm involved in. That's what this national, this, this new, uh, new Paradigm Institute is going to be, trying to bring together the people, all of the potential technology, all of the capacity to reach out and establish diplomatic relations with these beings, dealing with all of our government institutions, our businesses, et cetera, to try to come to grips with this in a comprehensive way. And that, you know, you, you've seen it yourself. People drift through three quarters you know, and, and all but the last two minutes of a game, drifting around, scoring 10 or 20 points. And then all of a sudden, in the last two minutes, they score like 30 points, you know, because they turn it on. And what we've got to do is we've got to turn this on now. Every single capacity that we've got, every contact we've got, every thought we've had, we've got to come together and we've got to get past the, the, the people challenging each other, competing with each other, you know, uh, castigating each other. We've got to transcend this need to depend upon the elite who are clearly not going to participate in this. They are not going to do this. They're going to try to keep all the advantages for themselves. We've got to establish a new pathway. We have to carve a new pathway to the stars. We have to reach out to the extraterrestrial people ourselves and do this ourselves. That's, uh, that's what I believe, and that's what the New Paradigm Institute is designed to do. Uh, we're going to get adequate funding for this, uh, and we're establishing it now in, in our, uh, inside our 40-year uh, public interest organization, uh, and we're, we're going to do that. Uh, why so- is it, and then I'm sorry to interrupt, but why is it that the Hamiltonians seem to have extraordinary success on keeping us on, I think Alex Jones, one contribution to history is his definition of Earth as a prison planet, because that's what I think it is. I think we're being deliberately kept down on the farm. And if we are, by extraordinary resources, how do you break out of prison? You need to find, like the, the, the governor of North Dakota the other day apparently found a billionaire willing to fund the National Guard from the state of North Dakota to go to Texas to sit on, on, the, on the border, which I find extraordinary in both extra constitutional terms yes. and in terms of financial terms. Well, why don't we have a few billionaires who understand this meta message, this meta philosophy, this literal, you know, extinction or survival uh, crisis we're facing and throw in a modicum of money to develop the known technologies that I can put my fingers on with a couple of phone calls as I said, I had one of them in my hands, you know, a few months ago that literally can create the revolution because the anti-gravity is the flip side of the ultimate non-environmental uh, detrimental uh, technology for generation of electricity. If you marry that with the Biden administration's idea of an infrastructure plan that is so sweeping that it electrifies the nation at a new level, you have the beginnings of a way to save the planet. The problem is the choke points are so rigidly held 
by these small group of families that no amount of citizen effort appears to make any real headway because it all comes down to funds. Well, we, we will see. We will see. Uh, we're, we're moving on this right now. Uh, I'm, I'm setting as I've gotten clearance from our board to set up this project inside our, our institute. Uh, we've been given a 70,000 square foot Art Deco hotel, uh, one hour north of San Francisco on uh, Clear Lake, an 18 and a half mile long lake. Uh, we're, we're going to establish a virtual uh, institute that is going to use the technology of like Second Life to bring in uh, everybody from Urban Laszlo to everybody else around the world to participate in roundtable discussions of this. Uh, and then we're going to try to convey this into the, the real institute there. But we're going to be doing 90% of the work through virtual, a virtual New Paradigm Institute. And people can get in touch with us about this at the RomeroInstitute.org uh, and can reach me. It's real simple. It's Daniel dot peter dot shehan s-h-e-e-h-a-n at gmail dot com we're in the process of doing this right now we've all got to participate in this this is not an elite undertaking this is an undertaking on the part of the people uh and we're going to be doing this pursuant to the principles of natural law and transparency and we're going to we're going to do this we're going to save ourselves we're going to save ourselves. We're not going to depend upon the elite or their money uh, or their uh, endorsement or their disclosure. Will We're this, to, will this institute, up. Danny, have a division, an R&D division that yes. takes known technologies that are not, yep. you know, blue sky. They're not, you know, just uh, figures on yes. paper. There's real nope. hardware. It just needs yes. money for commercial development. And we, 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 we will have that. We will have the technology division. Yes, absolutely. Because one of the routes to liberation, and again, I'm a little apprehensive of depending on ETs, beneficent ETs for yeah. anything. I, I agree. I agree. We're, we're, not, we're not dependent upon them. That's just part of it. Because the, the coming to grips with the understanding that we are not only not actually in the center of the physical universe, that was the belief up until Copernicus and Galileo. Uh, but the fact is that we are not even at the pinnacle of the pyramid of sentient life in the universe. We have to come to grips with that. We have to come to understand where we really are in the great scheme of things in the universe. We cannot go the way of a small tribe in the middle of the Fiji Island somewhere that didn't know the world was there. And all of a sudden when they discover that it's there, their entire culture collapses mm. uh, based of the new knowledge. We cannot let that happen to us. We've got to come to grips with this now. We have to confront and discuss the philosophical and theological, sociological, psychological dimensions of this new paradigm worldview that we have to adopt. And we have to lean into this now. The technology is part of that. The, the philosophy is part of that. The theology is part of that. This is what has to happen at the New Paradigm Institute. And we all have to participate. And given the technology that we have now to be able to gather everyone virtually at a round table and, uh, and participate face to face with each other in this new paradigm institute and its virtual manifestation, we can begin to do that now. Uh, I'm in fact having meetings starting in two days with the people that are going to be putting the technology together to mount this new paradigm virtual institute. 
uh, and we can start bringing people together to have these conversations. Uh, and it'll have a technology division, and it's going to be able to get at a lot of these profound questions. And you've asked the, the, the $64,000 question, why is it that the extraterrestrial beings have not yet come forward and had these direct communications with us? What is it that we can do to overcome Well, that? But Danny, my, my question is even deeper. If there is a prime directive, if somehow there's a galactic federation and the non-human sentients have, have kind of seeded Earth and our extraordinarily turbulent history, as determined by the ET archaeology we've looked at, to the human family, those that should be part of our overseers or part of our keepers or you know babysitters or whatever you want to call them, those guys seem to have a hidden agenda where they just let us dangle in the wind until we exterminate ourselves and it's going to be look ma no hands they were just too damn dumb to smarten up in time and it's such a shame and tisk tisk etc etc and no overt action no invasions no armies no super weaponry we just do it to ourselves because the sub rosa catalyst which could have changed the course of history in let's say the energy field have been withheld and, in fact, have been suppressed again and again and again. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll have to prove that we're capable of transcending that challenge. That's what we have to do. And we know what the challenge is. And I, I, I don't want to use the, the sports metaphor, but in closing, I remember in 1968, it sounds kind of funny, 1968, you know, after I'd gone from Harvard College up to Harvard Law School, uh, that the, the – the famous Harvard-Yale football game, they were both 9-0 and coming into the final game on Thanksgiving Day, and Harvard was behind by 24 points with only like five minutes left to go in the game, and they brought in their third-string quarterback, Frank Champy, his name was, and he tied the game up with no seconds left on the clock. Uh, it was in the New York Times the next day on the sports page, Harvard beats Yale, 2424. Uh, and so that, so that what, what we've got to do is we've got to at least be able to tie here. So we, we've got to put, we've got to pour it on that, you know, we're in the last two minute drill for the human family. Uh, and, you know, we're surrounded by challenges, but we're buoyed by our confidence in each other. Uh, and we need to bring to bear every single talent we have uh, in every single person that we can get on board to help do this. And we can't be you know, spending our time, attacking other people or denigrating them. We just got to rise up and do the work ourselves. And I believe we can do it through the new paradigm Institute. Well, Danny, uh, we have run out of runway. My guest this morning has been Danny Sheehan and Stephen Bassett. And it's the beginning, not the end of an extraordinary conversation. And I believe with Stephen that the next few months are going to be determinative. And I have a feeling that it's not going to be exactly according to the script. So until next weekend, remember, third star on the left, straight on till morning. Good night, everyone, and keep looking up.